Welcome again to the uh, Past and the Pending podcast. I am your host, Adam Sexton. This is the very, the actual true episode where I've actually got a guest where we can talk about the entertainment choices that we have made recently. One from the past, one from the present, covering film, TV, video games, books, uh, music. And uh, for this first episode, uh, I've got my first guest, who uh, his name is uh, Joe. Joe, welcome very much. Welcome to the show, man. Hey, how's it going? It's going very well, sir. Uh, I appreciate you uh, volunteering. Uh, you are in some ways a kind of a guinea pig uh, for this uh, first uh, episode. So we'll just see how this uh, turns out, but uh, I've got I've got faith in this one. I I uh, I really think this is going to turn out just fine. Uh, I appreciate uh, uh, all the feedback I got on uh, the episode zero, the little mission statement podcast I had posted about two or three weeks ago. I had planned to record an episode earlier, but work or life just got in the way, so. Uh, you know, better late than never, but uh, I think, uh, but I think this is going to turn out just fine. Uh, so, Joe, I am uh, really uh, thankful for you to volunteer. That that was one of the things that was scaring me. I could put this uh, podcast episode out, and I would get absolutely no one who would want to uh, be a guest on here. But uh, I I do appreciate you uh, coming on here, man. Oh, no problem. I've actually been wanting to get on a podcast for a while, so that was exciting whenever you posted that. I was you know, glad somebody actually took the time to do it as opposed to me just talking about it all the time. So, you know, good job on being actually productive. Oh, thank you, sir. <laughs> it's it, it, it's kind of very uh, – at the very outset, it seems like a very challenging thing. You uh, – it almost feels like you know you're in a drama club and uh, in high school and you're gonna and you have stage fright you know you you want to you don't want to embarrass yourself in front of your peers and you actually want to have something to say but i've been listening to podcasts for so long and i've heard podcast shows cover similar topics and i thought well why not try something like this? I mean, right now it's it's free. It's kind of, or if if not free, it's very inexpensive. And I want to jump right in before we uh, reach some kind of dystopian point in our culture where recording a podcast won't be as free or whatever. I don't know. Maybe that's just <laughs> some, maybe that's some crazy uh, conspiratorial thinking on my part. Yeah. But. Uh, Maybe well, maybe they'll make you pay for Skype, and that would be that'd be a blow. So <laughs> well, yeah. it is run by Microsoft, so I wouldn't put it past them. But or maybe I shouldn't say that because they'll be listening to this and uh, shut me down anyway. <laughs> they remember, uh, they're on that they're on that prism list of uh, people that spy on you, so be careful. <laughs> yeah, I really I should really just stop talking about that. Anyway, <laughs> moving on. Um, like I said, let's just get into the nitty gritty of it. Uh. Well, I guess the first thing we'll start off with is uh, movies. And, uh, sir, since you are my guest, let's start with your pick uh, from the past. Uh, What do you got for us? It's not that far in the past. I just picked it because it's, at this point, my favorite movie ever, which is 2006 uh, Cinderella Man, which was directed by Ron Howard. It's about, uh, it's it's based on a true story. It's a biopic about... 
uh, J.J. Braddock, who was a boxer in the Depression era, and uh, or no, I'm sorry, the the uh, the Great Depression in America, and uh, basically it's about him struggling to you know feed his family, you know doing box. It's 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 an underdog story, just like Rocky, but you know for some reason I like it way better than Rocky. I don't know. It might be Paul Paul Giamatti plays a really good. Uh, he's the manager for uh, J.J. Braddock, which is played by Russell Brand. And, uh, I mean, I've always kind of wanted to be, a, a, a dad as well. And that's, it's very focused on how he is as a father. And it's very, you know, and I like underdog, uh, stories. So that's my favorite movie. Nice. Uh, yep. <clears throat> uh, it's, it's Russell Crowe, not Russell Brand, by the way. <laughs> Russell, yeah, you're right. <laughs> well, that would have been an interesting <laughs> movie too, man. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, maybe I mean that would be a way different movie if it was Russell Brand. They'd be, you know, they'd probably be living in poverty because of his addiction, and oh, yeah, maybe they'd be about that. Well, in fact, uh, you know, speaking of the movie being about something different, every time I, a, a lot of the times when it first came out, and I brought up Cinderella Man to other people, you know, because of the Cinderella in the title, people thought it was about a boxer who had, you know, changed his gender or had a sex change or whatever. For, right. <laughs> I remember that being a big deal with people not wanting to see it because they're and uh, you know I'd be fine with seeing a movie like that, but people were you know whenever I talked about it, I was just like, no, it's it's you know it's probably one of the manlier movies because it's just people punching the shit out of each other. Yeah, no, it's not. I don't know. Well, it, it just goes to show that some people, I mean, maybe just still to this day, will judge the movie simply by its title with. You know our our ability to access either the internet in some particular form or another, or just simply reading a publication. We have the ability to do, you know, just a smidgen of research before we you know jump into a movie, and I and it's probably still like the lowest common denominator of uh, the movie going populist still abides by that archaic way of choosing their movie. So yeah, that can be frustrating even for you. I mean, you, you said this is your favorite movie. Yeah. And I actually, I remember at the time too, uh, some of the more legitimate criticism of, uh, you know, a lot of people weren't into boxing movies simply because of the, I guess the violence they thought it promoted, which is, uh, you know that's a more legitimate concern. They at least know about the movie, but it still was frustrating for me. It won it won the best picture Oscar, I believe, for 2006. I can't remember exactly. I know that one of the actors, it might have been Paul Giamatti, won the best supporting actor, which I was happy about. Well, I'm uh, actually looking at the Wikipedia page as we're talking about this. Um, it's it's uh, as far as Best Picture doesn't look like it got nominated for I – mean, as far as Academy Award, uh, Giamatti was nominated for Best Supporting Actor, and it got nominated for Film Editing and uh, for Best Makeup, which uh, apparently yeah, a- yeah. accounts for the serious beatings uh, that the boxers <laughs> yeah. take place. Uh, it, it was nominated for Best 
picture for is the golden uh i think it was yeah uh no, no i don't see it. actually i'm looking oh, at okay yeah now and i don't see it either so i guess yeah i guess maybe i just uh with my own bias thought it was nominated <laughs> for something else well it did uh giamatti did win for uh a screen actors guild award for uh, outstanding supporting oh. actor um i do remember seeing this movie i i missed it i missed out on on its uh theatrical run and uh but i i do like a, a good boxing a uh, good boxing movie and i agree with you crow was very credible uh physically as a boxer uh also really compelling as a uh as a responsible husband and father and i i just remember that one particular point uh, in one scene in the movie where he he finds out that his young son has been uh, stealing, I guess like fruit or something. Yeah, uh, it was a meat. Was, uh, I think it was a meat market he stole from. Yeah, sure, and yeah. there's this gentle scene where he just calmly tells him, "Look, I, I know things are hard, but we do not steal. Never ever steal." And like any kid who's caught in the crosshairs, who's caught, been caught dead to rights for doing something wrong with his father, the kid starts to kind of break down and Braddock just, you know, just tries to just tries to calm him down, just saying, look, I, I, I understand you were scared. It, it, it's those little human moments like that. It, it, there was also like this scene where uh, Renee Zellweger, who plays his, his uh, wife, yeah. goes to visit Giamatti because she's kind of oh, angry. That's she's, one of my favorite scenes too. Yeah, she tries to uh, she she uh, she visit, uh, his character. I think it's what was it Joel Gould because uh, she, I've, yeah I think so yeah and she thinks that Gould's kind of screwing him over financially. She goes up to his apartment and realizes that. Between him, between Joe Gould and his wife, they don't really have that much furniture. They've had to make sacrifices of their own in addition to uh, the Braddocks. So, uh, just how the how the Great Depression affected these people, uh, I mean, that was really effectively touched upon. Oh yeah, no, that's one of my favorite scenes as well, and one of the main reasons actually is because you know whenever I was in, uh, uh, you know high school, middle school, we were kind of, you know, not doing as well. I went to a private Catholic school and we, you know, we weren't doing as well as uh, some of the other people there. And I, I would kind of, you know, have this, uh, have this kind of stereotype or whatever in my head about these, you know, these kids I perceived as more well off, but, you know, you learn things about people's lives where, you know, no matter what somebody's had to make, you know, sacrifices or they might have it worse than you in some other way that you don't realize. So that's that's one of my favorite scenes as well, just for that message. You know, just don't, uh, you know, just don't judge a book by its cover sort of thing. Don't uh, don't not go see a movie because of its title. Right. <laughs> you exactly. might find out it has furniture. Exactly. <laughs> Um, how did you feel about this was one of the I remember if the movie got any criticism, it was with the controver controversial portrait of uh, Max Bear, who Craig Bierko plays in the movie. Uh, how did you feel about I mean, I, I, it's not uncommon for movies that are based on real life people or events to take dramatic license and some characters kind of turn out just a little bit better than the others, or some people are just, you know, kind of turned into villains. Uh, one of my fa other favorite Russell Crowe movies was The Insider. 
which is based on uh, Jeffrey Wigand, who was a former employee of Brown Williamson and uh, went on 60 Minutes and uh, basically broke this huge story that the Brown Williamson was spiking their their cigarette manu- manufacturing techniques by putting chemicals and which would basically make the nicotine levels more addictive but at the cost of uh affecting the health uh even greater and uh the its depiction of the mike wallace character came under fire uh, uh and mike wallace who was still alive at the time of the movie uh, really attack that. And on this movie, I can remember like some family members of, uh, Max bear, uh, came out against it, or maybe there was just some, uh, sports historians. Uh, how did you feel, uh, uh, both about, uh, the depiction of the movie? I mean, does it demonize him to, uh, to like the point of no return or is it, or does it, or does it really matter? Did, did it really affect the movie in terms of its quality? Um, in my opinion, I mean, he is pretty one dimensional in the movie as they, you know, there's that scene where they walk in and I guess on his hotel room and he's with a bunch of supermodels that he's supposedly sleeping with. And then there's the, there's that meeting they have at dinner where he's, you know, I can go 10 rounds with a dancing bear or what he does something to his wife. I remember. Yeah. <laughs> or she, I know she, she, she throws water at the guy at Max bear. I forget why exactly. He comes over and says something about what I think it's that he says, cause our, Oh, uh, one of my favorite scenes too is whenever they're going over the footage of Max bear fighting other people. And he, I think he kills a guy in the ring and the, one of the guys that JJ Braddock is trying to get to put on a fight is saying like, you know, my, my, uh, my heart's for my family, but my brains and my balls are for business. I don't want you to fight this guy because you're going to get killed like these other people. But yeah, uh, anyway, he eventually they convince him. And, uh, at anyway, they go to this dinner party before because, uh, uh, you know, they're kind of hyping up the fight. So everybody's at this dinner party where Max bear comes over and says like, Hey, Something to the effect of like, hey, make sure and uh, keep your husband on a leash so that he doesn't get himself killed when he goes against me. Because, you know, he's not up to my he's not up to uh, my standards or whatever. And right. you know, that, gets to, that gets her pretty angry. And so he didn't. In other words, he uh, it, it has been a while since I've seen the movie, but he didn't pull like a clubber Lang and try to <laughs> try to hit on her. Like I can please you in ways that your man can't. Or well, uh, clubber Lang is. I mean, he's not. I will say this: as one dimensional as they portray Max Bear, he's not clubber Lang. He's, yeah, he's not Mister T just screaming at the top of his lungs. There's actually. You know, there seems like there is a human being somewhere in Max Bear, whereas Clubber Lang is just, you know, it's it's Mr. T yelling at Rocky because that's that became the formula for those movies. Pretty much starting with that one was just right. Or maybe maybe even starting with two when Apollo Creed wants the rematch and he's just like, damn it, I I got a reputation to save, I, I, you know. And then, the you know, kind of the first Rocky movie was about giving an underdog, the shot at the title, and then three through five are all, you know, that theme, except with Rocky as the Apollo Creed figure. Yeah. <clears throat> yeah. Um, speaking of Bear and uh, Craig Bierko, I thought at the very, at the very least, he seemed to be uh, physically imposing and just seemed like a credible threat as far as Braddock is. And I remember there's this one moment where 
uh, uh, Braddock is watching this uh, film reel of uh, the fight of a fight that Max Bayer was in. And then there's that moment where I guess Bayer turns to the camera and maybe in Braddock's mind, it zooms in on his face and the look on Bayer's face is just, you know, this whole, I'm going <laughs> to, I must break you kind of look on his face. <laughs> it, it was, it was uh, actually pretty, pretty chilling to me. So, uh, and, and Bjerko is one of these people who, who's played villains before. I thought he played a, a memorably nasty character in uh, the long kiss. Good night. Uh, so it seems like for a time, I, I don't know what he's done recently, but it seems like for a time during the late nineties, maybe the early aughts that uh, he, uh, he got some traction playing, uh, playing villains. Yeah. I, I actually remember uh, there was something with uh, on set whenever they had Russell Crowe or uh, Greg Bierko's birthday, it might have been Greg Bierko's birthday where to in order to, uh, you know, make the uh, kind of rivalry more genuine and the sort of hatred between them a little more genuine. They actually uh, Russell Crowe, I think, refused to go to Greg Bierko's birthday or maybe it was the other way around. <laughs> they were just, yeah, like they had some sort of birthday party. And, you know, in order to it's, you know, kind of the method acting that isn't really acting. They just sort of, you know, one of. They, they just kind of cut each other off and just, you know, actually started to find ways that they could hate each other in real life so that it could, you know, come out better on screen. I remember reading a story about that at some point, you know, and I remember it being, you know, something about, you know, I'm not going to show up to your birthday party because I hate you. <laughs> <laughs> right. That effect. So, and I, I like that uh, whenever you were talking just now, too, about Greg Bierko, you made, I don't know if it was intentionally, you made another Rocky reference with, uh, you know, Ivus Break. Yes, the, the Ivan uh, Drago <laughs> or Drago. That, that's the Dolph Lundgren character from uh, Rocky Four. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> we can't, uh, you, you, it's like you can't talk about boxing movies without throwing uh, Rocky into it. Yeah. But, uh, well, I mean, I just recently, Netflix actually just recently had all five of them streaming. So that's, that's why I guess I'm kind of up on it too. Cause I actually hadn't seen uh, any of the movies except for six until uh, they had that on Netflix. Yeah. Uh, six, six. I love, I, I, I kind of think that one, maybe two would be good, but I think uh, six pretty much makes despite uh, how th- three, three and four have their entertainment value. Five really never should have happened. But I think you can see the first and the second, and then the sixth, and you'd be good. Like yeah. I don't, I don't think, I don't think three or four, and definitely not five, make that much of a difference as far as building that character. I, I don't, I don't even think six uh, even mentions uh, the events for uh, three through five. So you know, yeah. whatever. Well, I mean, well, for the. Between four and five, I noticed uh, his kid grows up to be like five years older than he was in uh, number four. And then in number five, Rocky just comes back from Russia and his kid's a teenager. (laughs) (laughs) Continuity errors in a Stallone film. And maybe and I mean, maybe if you're seeing this movie, you know, uh, however much later, like maybe two years, three years down the line, you don't notice. But watching it on Netflix kind of, you know, purging straight through all of them, you definitely are like, wait a minute. (laughs) <laughs> how, did, how did he grow that tall that quickly and then see i will say that i i do like i actually am one of the few probably the only person that actually likes five and a lot of the reason is all of these characters that are talking to rocky always keep saying like i'll fight you anytime anywhere and you know but always it's in the boxing ring and it's always you know the same 
uh, building up to a big fight. But, you know, Jimmy Gunn actually fights him anytime, anywhere, just in a parking lot behind a bar. You know, there's a street brawl at the end of it. Yeah. That yeah, guy. I, <laughs> I can. Re- I remember that that scene, if, if nothing else. Um uh, going back to Cinderella Man, uh, one of the things that I also really remember was uh, the music score by Thomas Newman. I mean, he he uh, he's always good at making these lush John Barry like uh, melodies uh, for the movies he's in, and especially that 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 main thing that plays through uh, I think like the beginning. And there's there's that scene in the movie where he's going after. Uh, his friend Mike, I think it's the the character that Patty uh, Constantine, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, probably not. But it's where Mike has, um, oh, see, he goes to like this the the slum area. Uh, I, I I guess uh, his friends Mike's fallen on even harder times than uh, than Braddock has, and Braddock goes to try to rescue him. It, like I said, it's been a while since I've seen this, but um, but there was this music cue that that played out, and it and it was it was beautifully wrought, but it 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 just captured this kind of. Um, you know we're 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 it, it captured the kind of mood of uh of a nation that was caught up in a serious slump uh you know not only financially but kind of morally as well and uh these these move these sports movies where a sporting event or a sporting team is used to build the morale for a nation uh I, i'm thinking of stuff like you know maybe miracle uh, or any others that I can't qu- really quite think about. Um, yeah, Miracle's move- a good one. Hockey movies. Yeah. I, I haven't seen that many hockey movies since uh, Mighty Ducks and all that came out. <laughs> well, uh, besides uh, Slapshot, which is, which is fantastic, if you haven't seen that, you oh, should. Oh, that's actually not true. I saw, I saw, what is it, Goon. That was a good one. Yes, that's- yeah, yeah, that was also a very good one. But, uh, but Cinderella Man really, really excels at that. Even if that's a conceit that sounds a little too Disney for some people, I think the movie sells it uh, that oh, yeah. this, this boxing event is not just more is more than just an opportunity for Braddock and his family to to bounce back, but it's also something that you know the nation or the people following the sport can rally around. Uh, Right, and that's what—that's actually what makes sports a lot more interesting to me than uh, than you know just the sport itself. Is definitely like you know kind of the metaphor it, it is for the for the stories around it. Yeah, uh, and uh, I remember too. And the, you know, when you say it's too Disney for some people. Maybe I mean that's kind of the way that I I think Ron Howard might have seen it that way because I remember him saying that you know he was. He was always listening to these J.J. Braddock fights with his dad when they get him on the radio. So that mean, I mean, that might have been something for his family too. That might have been the way they saw it. And so that comes across. Well, I mean, movie. I'm I'm not saying that uh, I, it's perfectly fine for movies to engage you on conceits like that. I mean, that, that's that's basically what they do. They uh, emotionally manipulate. No, emotionally manipulate you in that particular way it's it's the only thing the only way that someone would kind of reject it is if it came off as insincere or something but cinderella man is a 
to my memory, is a very sincere movie. Like it, it, it takes its uh, stakes, you know, takes stakes very seriously, and uh, makes a you know very compelling portrait for uh, Braddock and his family and his and his friends and his uh, you know his uh, collaborators, basically. Oh yeah. Yep. <laughs> Uh, anything else you want to mention about uh, Cinderella Man? Uh, I think we've covered, uh, you know, all of the major bases I can think of right now. Plus, we've been talking about it for 30 minutes. we got a lot to get to. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, you know. All right. Well, on that note, let's uh, turn to my pick from the past, which is a uh, 1980 uh, horror film uh, called The Changeling. Have you seen this? I have seen The Changeling with Angelina Jolie where they switch her uh, kid out, but I have not seen The Changeling in 1980, no. Yeah, this is a, a horror film from a uh, director by the name of uh, Peter Medek. I don't know if I'm getting that last – I may just may as well just forget about trying to pronounce anyone's uh, last name properly. Uh, he's a uh, – he's a – made a lot of really really good movies as far and as well as doing some interesting uh, TV work like he's directed episodes of Homicide Life on the Street and The Wire and Carnival and he's made some uh movies like The Craze and uh The Ruling Class and uh I watch uh, I subscribe to Netflix's uh disc library and uh, I've always heard about this movie and it's kind of an old school approach to a haunted house movie that stars uh, George C. Scott in it. And uh, in the movie, he's playing uh, John Russell, who's this uh, music composer who uh, was moving cost, who is uh, living, he was moving cross country into the Washington state area uh, after his wife and daughter are killed in a traffic accident, which is not a spoiler since it's the very first thing that happens in the movie. Mm. Uh, he, uh, he gets a job uh, in the uh, Washington State area, and he needs a place to stay. And uh, a friend of his uh, is able to get him to provide him rent for this historical house that no one's currently living in in the uh, suburban Seattle area. And uh, he's living there, and and it's this large and very old uh victorian area mansion and uh he's only got at the very beginning he's only been given very little information about uh who lived in it why it's been abandoned for so long and there's even one of the uh i think one of the characters who lives in a uh i think it's like the historical society she tells them that given him the rent for that building was a mistake and he's kind of puzzled as to why but pretty soon the more he lives in the house he starts hearing these weird banging noises he starts hearing voices of what sounds the what appears to be a child and um you hear there's stuff like uh doors that just start opening and shutting and uh, at some particular point he's exploring the house he's exploring areas that uh he he uh previously didn't go to areas that uh were not uh taken care of by the staff he finds a basement area which is just uh you know just seemed to be like the basement area that time for god it's covered in dust and cobwebs and there's this wheelchair that's uh built for built for a small child 
and uh, the further he investigates uh, in uh, the history of the house, the previous occupants, he uncovers this mystery of this uh, tragic tale of this kid who, uh, who I guess is uh, somehow involved with a uh, powerful, uh, powerful family uh, who is also linked to this uh, United States senator that is played by uh, Melvin Douglas. And I won't tell you anything more about the movie beyond that because I, I think – because I went to it as cold as possible. And uh, while the, it, it's an old movie and there's been so many more takes upon the haunted house genre since then, but I think the way that the movie uh, puts out its information through – it's uh, scenes of exposition or of the various physical phenomena that Scott encounters while living in the house, just letting this movie kind of wash over you in its way. And it's not, it's not a very long movie. I think it's somewhere under, you know, two hours or so. I discovered that I actually like these old school approaches to scary movies where there's not, there's not an over-reliance on gore or slime or shocks or whatever. I mean, they're, they're, Technically, for some people, there could be some really seriously good jump scares, but uh, to me, it's it's watching this man who suffered a serious personal tra- tragedy and how he deals with uh, this ghost that's reaching – that's apparently reaching out to him for a reason that I obviously won't go into, but it is a very well-directed movie. I mean the camera work is beautiful. And uh, all the acting's pretty good. Uh, Melvin Douglas, I've mentioned before, he plays this senator who may or may not have something to do with the house's history. Uh, the the movie, I mean, there, it, it's got a very small cast in it. M- mostly the movie belongs to uh, George C. Scott and uh, this uh, actress named Trish uh, Vandiver, who, again, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but whatever. Moving on. Yeah. Um, it mostly belongs to these three main characters and, of course, uh, the house itself. And I, I just I just really got taken up by the way that this, this horror film handles grief and apprehension and dread. And, uh, and uh, it's, it's probably going to become one of, my, uh, one of my favorites. And it reminds me of like some other haunted house movies like the, the Uninvited or the, or the Haunting. Not, the, not the, the you know, shitty remake that Jean de Bond made you know, uh, around like 99 or 2000 or whatever. But this was like in the 1960s. Uh, it was directed by Robert Wise where a lot of it is just atmosphere and just a really good – story being told and uh, that that was my pick uh the 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 changeling nice uh yeah that the closest thing i've probably seen to that recently would be sinister where that you know there's at least for the fact that there is you know a haunted house where kids were there before and they're you know screwing with people the but what you mentioned about uh you know how it's you know there's great acting great camera work and it deals with other themes like dread and apprehension and all that i find that uh you know when i was a kid i used to get scared crapless by uh the exorcist yeah but now i now i can uh, watch it and you know it's kind of 
there you know it's over the top but uh, the thing the thing that i found is the best horror movies for me because i don't really get scared by them that much anymore are the ones that work as dramas too yeah you know? and that's exact and that's what i think the changeling is it's it's a, like a drama first and foremost yeah so other than that, I really don't have anything else to recommend. As far as I know, it is not currently streaming anywhere, but it is available through Netflix's uh, disc library. Uh, and I forgot to ask, is Cinderella Man streaming anywhere, or is this just something you'll have to rent physically? Let me uh, check on Netflix, unless you yeah, unless you know better than I do. Um, I think you're going to have to res- rent it physically. I can't say for sure. Let me... Okay. Yeah, it's it's not available streaming on Netflix. Uh, let me see if I type in streaming Cinderella Man if you can. Yeah, there is a, a search engine called uh, Can I Stream It that handles uh, that handles. Uh, that's a really good search engine for uh, putting a movie title in or a TV show and seeing if any of the uh, uh, current uh, streaming services like Netflix or Hulu or Amazon Prime do that. All right. Well, I'm, I just put it in the, to can I stream it just now, so it's it's going. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how long that's going to take. Let me see. Yeah. I, hmm. Movie results for Cinderella Man. Um. Looks like maybe. What? Let's see. Available now on cable by Xfinity and on Cinemax. Okay. So I guess if you have cable, I guess you can order it. Okay. Well, uh, having seen it, uh, I, I can. You know, obviously, it's your favorite movie, so it's not like you can recommend it any further right. than that. <laughs> uh, but uh, I do believe that it's it's definitely worth uh, checking out. Oh yeah. I, I mean, especially. I mean, if you're into sports movies at all, I would check. I mean, it might not be everybody's favorite. Maybe some people will think it's too. Uh, too obvious where it's going since it is an underdog sports movie you know it's it's not like it doesn't follow most of the formula but i think you know the the emotional touches in there make it yeah what's that for me and uh i i would also recommend the changeling and if uh if you're listening to this and uh you don't like you know movies that are and i hate using the word torture porn to me that just that just doesn't really that, that that's a lazy that's like calling alternative rock grunge i i, I really think that just it's just a shitty word overall <laughs> uh, but if you like uh just a really intelligent horror film that tells a really good story uh i would highly recommend the changeling uh i don't have anything else on that so let's move on to your present pick or your most recent pick for your uh, for films? What, what do you got for us? The last thing that I saw in theaters was X Men: Days of Future Past. Ah, it was really good, but uh, you know, it was a lot of people were saying it was the best X Men movie yet, which uh, I guess I agree with. But it's also kind of the same sort of themes that I'm used to in these movies now, and um, it, it was it was great acted great directed great writing uh it just for some reason it just didn't uh it, it might have been too the fact that that's the most i've paid for a movie in a while because i bought popcorn <laughs> so yeah. maybe that was affecting my judgment because i paid for the uh getting off topic on the movie a little bit whenever i went to the movie to see this i actually uh 
we actually had a class in which, you know, we went over the fact that they do the prices for medium and large really close together because they want you to buy the large. Of course. And I knew that, but I was still like, well, I don't want a small really, and it, I feel kind of gypped if I get the medium, so I guess I'll pay eight bucks for a damn bag of popcorn. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and I never, I, I always end up regretting that because whenever you eat a bag of popcorn that big by yourself, like halfway through, at least for me, I just get sick and I just can't. <laughs> yeah, I can, I can never, I don't know. I'm guilty of that too. I'm never able to finish it. Like maybe, maybe if I'm lucky, three quarters of it will be gone. But other than that, uh, yeah. like I, like when I get to my pick for a present, I fell for the same particular trap, uh, <laughs> which we'll get it. We'll get into it later on. Um, yeah, uh, I I don't know if I can still call this the best one yet because I'm still pretty, very much enamored with uh, X2 X Men United. Um, but I thought, and I'm only somewhat familiar with the source material, and I understand that they had to make changes because the universe, uh, the movie universe is different from the comic book universe. Right, and, they, uh, put, they, they put Wolverine more up front. I guess in the comic book it was actually Kitty Pride that went yeah. to time, but the excuse they come up with in the movie for Wolverine to do it is, I thought was pretty solid, like... You know, yeah. if you get if you get hurt at all in here, you're not going to die. So why would we not send you? You know, exactly. And uh, I thought it was a great way to bridge both the first class and uh, the current class. I mean, it, it it almost feels like a passing a passing of the torch from the future to the past, uh, despite the fact that they are coming up the the next sequel, which Brian Singer is also directing. I think it's going to involve apocalypse and uh i'm not particularly sure whether if that's going to involve the first class cast or the the current one i, I was under the impression that this was kind of like maybe the last thing but uh, unless i'm seriously uh misinformed about that i i don't know all i know is that uh, i need to read up more comic books because all of these ending scenes of movies now i have no idea what the hell they're uh you know what the, what the hell they're promising because at the end of that movie it was just there's a scene i guess in egypt where apocalypse i guess gets a start yeah I think it's egypt it's somewhere in a desert but uh i had no idea who he was because i'm used to just the apocalypse with the kind of the gray face and the red eyes and the big black suit or whatever and you know seeing him as not that i i didn't know who that was so whenever yeah. and they were chanting his i forget what his name is in the comic books before he becomes Apoc- apocalypse but they were chanting that name and i was like i don't know what's going on here same thing happened <laughs> with avengers when at the end they they teased um thanos thanos yeah i, I had no idea who thanos was so i was mm-hmm. like i i know you're trying to get me excited i, I and i am excited because i love these marvel movies but i don't know what i'm getting excited about until i go online and ask what it is exactly yeah i had that same issue with the avengers i mean i, I liked how it was dealt with but the, okay great who the hell are these people right oh, <laughs> but, oh man that see these i like that they're putting the end credit scenes in kind of the middle of the credits now too because i actually went back and saw avengers because somebody online had said oh there's a whole nother thing at the very very end of the credits that you just you just have to see it's so great and it's just it's just a funny little thing with them eating at shawarma and there's no dialogue 
Right. And I was and I was just like I I paid the 3D price and went back for that. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Oh my god. But uh yeah, but but uh, I, I do think I, I could buy the idea that someone can think Days of Future Past would be the best one. I mean, it, it's got a lot of the qualities that I liked about um, X X Men Two. the The scene with Quicksilver and that little I guess you can call it a Mexican standoff in that kitchen area. Uh-huh. It, it it was just like one of the the great sequences you could ever see with the crowd. Everyone was just laughing their ass off, and I and it made it immediately made me f- flash back to the opening sequence of X two where you got Nightcrawler making his uh assassination attempt in the White House, and it was it, Singer's superhero movies have a really particularly good way as to how to show special effects or how to show these. Uh, these superheroes use their powers just interesting camera angles and you know fight choreography uh that that's one of the things that made days of future past so strong at least from a spectacle standpoint but emotionally it kept it 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 kept it the the quality consistent and i mean just that scene between future and past xavier that that's probably my favorite scene in the whole movie just to see those two actors just fine. I, I, I didn't really, when I, I remember seeing flashes of that sequence in the trailer, and I thought, well, how the hell are you going to pull this off? But, uh, and it may be stretching. I mean, it may be pushing the limits as to, as far as my suspension of disbelief for a comic book movie to begin with, but they don't really, I, I, I even really don't mind it when comic book movies don't explain their science. Right. Like it, it, it's not, it's, it, it's not, I mean, cause if, if that was the case, I would hate back to the future and I don't want to be that kind <laughs> of a moron. So, right. Oh, no, well, there's a, there's a great scene and uh, I don't know if you've seen Looper, but there's yes. uh, Bruce Willis and Joseph Gordon-Levitt are sitting down talking. And I think one of them brings up the whole time travel thing and how it works. And Bruce Willis is just like, just don't, don't worry about it. You know, it's kind of the writers just telling the audience, like, just, just go with it. Just don't yeah. worry about it, kid. People should go with it. People should just, you know, stop trying to analyze everything. Like they're all in an episode of Mythbusters for crying out loud. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it depends on, I, I guess it depends on what movie it is too, because, you know, uh, if it's a Michael Bay movie, people will tear it up and nobody cares. <laughs> because I guess they weren't entertained by it, but you know, movies like these are like, well, it entertained me, so why would I? That's kind of my approach to it. Like, I'll I'll sort of analyze a movie for fun if there's nothing else to do, you know, if it's not entertaining. But if it's entertaining, yeah, you know, you did your job, fine. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Anything else to add? Uh, well, the Quicksilver thing. Uh, how do you think they're gonna do with? Because I believe there's a different actor portraying him in the upcoming either Spider-Man or something. There's, yeah, it's the Avengers sequel, Age there, of Ultron. Yeah, yeah because Marvel and, Disney owns the rights to you know that Marvel character, and uh, I guess Fox Searchlight, which is the ones that produce X-Men, also own you know. You know, it's two companies owning the same character, I guess. So, how do you think they're going to match up to that great uh, depiction of Quicksilver? I've heard during the, uh, I want to say it's the San Diego Comic Con, which happened recently, yeah. that they've showed like a uh, kind of a 
teaser for the trailer and it dealt with mostly the Ultron character and of the Avengers kind of clowning around. I've been told not only from the footage that they debuted there, but also through some publications like Entertainment Weekly or HitFix.com, they had their set visits and maybe they got to see some stuff. I'm told that uh, that that the Avengers movies has its own way of dealing with how to portray Quicksilver in action. So maybe it won't be maybe it will be handled visually kind of just a little bit different. I'd be interested if that's the case. I'm interested to see what they could possibly do because I mean, it seems like they cover a lot of ground in the small time we spend with that character. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how they're going to do it, but it, I guess. Well, I mean, considering how well the first Avengers take, uh, turned out i i think we're maybe in good hands i yeah. uh, just wish i just wish let that like with this story that they just simply tell us you can leave your your uh cliffhangers for the sequels if you want to especially preferably in the end credit stuff but tell a self-contained story despite the fact that this is part of an ever-expanding you know universe because if you don't do that you turn out into something like Amazing Spider-Man 2, which I haven't seen, but even from the people who liked it, they say that it's it it's half the movie is setting up for future movies, which well, kind of detracts from the entertainment value of the movie as itself. One of the person, as one of the people that liked it, yeah. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> I mean, well, the thing is, they uh, it should have been a movie about the relationship between spider-man and uh and gwen and the green goblin and that should have been it and instead they have green goblin and electro and rhino and rhino's paul giamatti who is you know became my favorite actor with uh, cinderella man for a short little while is the rhino but what they have him doing is just so over the top cheesy and just unnecessary I was just, I, I thought that was a weird yeah. choice. I don't know. He, he, there's really no point for him to be in the movie. He's kind of, he just plays kind of a bit part. And uh, that's always how I've thought of Rhino anyway. I've never, a lot of the Spider-Man villains to me are very, you know, be, especially, you know, they even have a literal kind of, you know, in a sense, they have literally a B movie villain in, uh, in, uh, uh, God, yeah. Mysterio, you know? That's kind of the way that I think about a lot of the Spider-Man villains. Like, you know, uh, Sam Raimi kind of chose all the ones that are more imposing and threatening. And, you know, in this movie, we have sort of the goofier ones like Rhino. Oh, well, maybe they'll tackle it or maybe that dream a lot of us have, which is that Marvel Studios actually gets that rights back from uh, Sony and we can see Spider-Man in these Avengers films. Maybe that will happen someday, but it, uh, that's a cash cow for Sony, so probably not likely. Yeah. All right. Uh, anything else on Days of Future Past, or should we move on? Uh, yeah, we should move on, because I honestly don't even remember it that well. Now that <laughs> okay, <come> fair <laughs> enough. Well, the movie, the, the present option I've got is a movie I just saw recently, so it's still pretty fresh in the mind, and it is, of course the guardians of the galaxy uh i have absolutely no 
knowledge of the source material and uh, none whatsoever. I did very little research going into it. I mean, I saw the teasers, which gave you like a uh, dirty dozen like explanation of the five main characters, but otherwise just threw random images at you and just say, look, this is going to be something between a space opera and a comedy. Just go see it. And I can uh, I can tell you the movie that they've been selling is the movie that we've got. It's it, it is both space opera and comedy, and I described it on Twitter as pretty much being like the Fifth Element. It's just smarter and it's funnier and it's not as it, it's way less French. Uh, <laughs> I've never seen the Fifth Element, so I'm not. I just remember, I just know the orange hair girl, and that's and Bruce Willis. Right. That. That's about well, all it, I know. It's definitely worth uh, checking out. I don't, I don't know if that's streaming or not, but uh, it, it's it's a very weird right. freaking movie, and it's got the weirdest Chris Tucker performance uh, I, that I've ever seen. But uh, it, yeah, I've been meaning to watch it for a while. Just haven't. It's one of those movies that's always been on the burner. Right. Type of thing. Well, um, Guardians of the Galaxy, it, it does the whole uh, let's assemble these group of ragtag misfits and basically turn them into heroes. And it does so with uh, it, it does so very, very carefully and very skillfully where it just it shows how they not only come into orbit of each other, but how they unite. And uh, it, it's it's got so much in it. It's got like uh it's it's even got like a prison escape sequence that was you know just as good as anything else I've seen, but it, it's a very good crowd, uh, very good film to see with the crowd. The the people that I was within, they laughed and cheered as hard as the the crowd that I saw the first Avengers movie with it. And uh, like I said, you you can be a newbie and come into this movie and enjoy it because all five of the uh, titular uh guardians were so well written and acted and even animated uh i mean the rocket raccoon which could be a hard sell for some people he's a that's actually the main reason i want to see it is uh bradley cooper as rocket oh, raccoon. I, he's fan he's well animated <laughs> he's got great dialogue and cooper does a really good job with it with his voice and uh, a lot of people were just i could just tell like the vibe of the audience people were just digging him most people are really going to love groot the uh the you know the walking talking tree that is basically rocket raccoon's guardian and he's got several moments in the movie especially in the third act that were as uh well received as like the action beats for hulk and the avengers movie uh it it's it seriously goes out of its way to uh, to please you all, uh, without you know trying really hard, without throwing everything in the kitchen sink into it. Um, a lot of people have talked about this being their personal favorite Marvel film, or maybe even the best. And I'm not sure I can agree because if it has a flaw of or any, it, it's with its main two villains. Uh, Lee Pace, who is an actor most people are familiar with from Pushing Daisies, he's been in films like uh, The Fall, or he even had a bit part in Lincoln. He can handle being good or evil, and he has considerable uh, presence, and he puts a lot of menace into this character, which I think is called Ronan the Accuser. But the movie makes like this mistake where it tells you he wants to kill this one species of people. He basically wants to obliterate this entire planet. 
but it doesn't tell you why. It just tells you that he doesn't like them. And I got the feeling that scenes explaining his character were maybe cut for pacing reasons. And I kind of hate that. I, I, uh, when certain movies like, <laughs> say, Thor The Dark World or the Star Trek reboot, you had a villain that seemed like it had a lot of potential and they cut stuff from it that really would have made it a whole lot better. You, I, and I understand you want to, especially with a, with a beginning film for a group of people, you want to really put some focus on your heroes. But I, the villain should not get the the shaft in this regard as well. So I, it doesn't hurt the overall movie. It, it's just it could have been a whole lot better. And uh, right, they sort of so by cutting that stuff out, they kind of just made him into I want to take yeah, over the world. Yeah, he he gets right. a, he gets a the what is known as the uh, what 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 do they call it? Like the uh, oh my brain's just my mind's just drawing a blank. It, it's it's the big what's it that everyone's looking for, like the special weapon, like in the stupid ass transfer movies, it's the all spark and the Avengers. It's, uh, the Tesseract. It's this kind of uninteresting thing, this object that everyone's going after. Basically all we know about the villain is he wants to get his hands on this. He can make a weapon out of it. He can kill a bunch of people. After that, we don't know what the hell he's going to do. I guess he'll just kill some more. Is it, is it the, is it the, the, the well, MacGuffin? Is yeah, that, that, that was what I was looking for, sir. Yeah, the the that's also the Tesseract in uh in the Avengers movie, but I guess and that's another one that's entertaining enough that you kind of don't Right. And uh, and I and the Avengers kind of got away with it because you understood who Loki was and what he was wanting to do. You 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 did get some uh, character shading from him from the the first Thor movie, but even within context of the Avengers, it explained what the villain was doing and what he 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 wanted to take over Earth. That was simply right. it. So fair enough. But Guardians of the Galaxy is. It, you know, beyond that little information, I, I just got the feeling that maybe they shot the material and they just didn't want to put it in the movie because they wanted to keep it down to two hours, or and so they can show it as many times throughout a you know a given day or whatever. I don't know. Um, yeah. Like I said, it doesn't hurt the movie's overall quality, but if they put it in there, I could say that this would be at the top of the best Marvel movies, which for me is right now. Pretty much, maybe Captain America: The Winter Soldier with the Avengers kind of behind. Uh, who knows? Um, yeah, Winter Soldier was pretty great. The especially, I liked how they uh, they expanded on kind of the veteran aspect of Falcon's yeah. character too, and uh, you know, also with Captain America, how he's. I, I loved uh, Captain America's little list of like things to get to in the future. In the future that he missed out on, like one of them was there was some movie somebody told him to watch. Well, I, don't remember. I only got a slight look at, but I remember he wrote Star Wars, and Wars was scratched out, and Trek yeah. was written right next to it. And I even <laughs> heard that in some foreign markets, they reshot that little shot of the notepad, so it would include cultural items that belong that were like indigenous to that to that uh 
to that uh, location or whatever. So if it was in Russia or China, he would be writing stuff stuff down that was popular within the cultures for those areas. Yeah, I love stuff like that. A little trivia where they change it for different markets. And yeah, I have that little, you know, you can shoot that little cutaway shot as many times as you want. You don't even really need the actor there because it's just a close right. up of that notebook. And- and it's a perfect nice. it's a perfect kind of prop to show that that character who's out of time but kind of kind of making progress as far as uh uh fitting in with uh the world that he's now a part of and uh winter soldier had like this strong theme of disillusionment you know we've got the 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 government uh, spy angle where you know everyone's watching you and they can the whole drama the whole problem regarding drone planes and drone attacks and stuff like that and Captain America I haven't read a lot of his stuff but the one thing I got is this is a guy who fights for America but he doesn't always trust the agencies under which he's reporting to so they nailed that aspect of the character in that film Right, and I love how the you know there's more a little bit more conspiracy theory yeah. and everything you know as you go like he's he's very trusting whenever it's the fifties and everything seems hunky dory and then you know you start learning things about the government and uh, you know it, I like I like the way that these movies kind of mirror real life yeah. in those respects. Yeah, <laughs> um, but going back to uh, Guardians of the Galaxy, like I said, um, uh, you know, just the, the main two villains. There, there was one that was played by Karen Gillan, who plays Nebula. And one of the things that I saw about the movie was that eventually, judging from the teaser, she was going to have like this major sword fight with uh, the Zoe Zaldana character. And when it happens, it's very quickly. Like I was expecting, like some major six, seven minute thing where they're just going to go at each other with swords or knives or whatever. And it's intercut with a lot of the, the the final action sequence. There's a lot of moving parts to it, and they nail so much of it. You know, visually, as far as the choreography goes, like I said, it's minor. I I, I was just kind of bummed out that it didn't last as long as it did. But um, the movie is still fantastic. I would highly recommend it. Uh, you're gonna you're you're you will drink in the the visuals they made for the movie. You're gonna laugh your ass off. And uh, just speaking about concession stand items, I, I fall <laughs> constantly for – for some reason, I need to have that – I don't know if the theater you go to has souvenir cups. Like if you purchase like the large drink, they'll yeah. give you like – Yeah, they, they have they have a big uh, bucket of popcorn you can pay like 20 20- – Something something outrageous for, but you can you know yearly come back and refill right. it. Right. Uh, well, the the one I attend to, it's part of the Malco franchise, and they offered for like an extra, for an extra dollar, you can get like this uh, dishwasher safe uh, big uh, big cup with the I think it had like the teaser poster on it. For an extra dollar fifty, you can get like a figurine. You either could choose from Star Lord or Rocket Raccoon. And like a moron, I fell for it. So, uh, I. Did you choose Star Lord? I chose Rocket Raccoon. Raccoon. Uh, but yeah, speaking of Star Lord, 2014 is pretty much going to be the year that I fell in love with Chris Pratt because between this and the Lego movie, uh, he's, he's fantastic. He's going to be everyone's, he's going to be the favorite of a lot of people. So, uh, 
Yeah, I remember him on uh, The Office, and I didn't really think that much of him. But yeah, he's really blown up. And he, I remember him in um, uh, yeah. Zero Dark Thirty. Was yeah. really good. <laughs> he was funny in that one, too. Um, yeah. All right. Well, I have nothing else to add for Guardians of the Galaxy. So what about uh, uh, television? What have you got here? Television for – you want to start with future or past? Let's go with one? past. All right. Uh, Animaniacs. Ah. Is I, yes. Because <laughs> they, just, they just recently uh, – the Nostalgia Critic, I don't know if you know who that is. He's one of the – I can't say I do. Yeah, Nostalgia Critic's kind of like – do you know the Angry yes. Video Game Nerd? <laughs> He's kind of the film critic version okay. of that in, in a way. There's there's actually a whole big uh, there's a series of nostalgia critic versus uh, angry video game nerd from a few years ago when they had sort of a funny rivalry, but uh, anyway he he actually got the two voice actors for Pinky and the Brain recently to do this sketch where they uh, where Brain basically bitches out Pinky for all of his failures <laughs> and he's like we would have damn well taken over the world for net by now if it wasn't for you but with much more coarse language and it's about a two minute oh, wow. video. No, and then at the end of it, uh, the two you see the two voice actors in in uh, Doug Walker, who's who, who's who plays the nostalgia critic. You see the two actual voice actors in his house because he's actually got a few uh, interviews with some of the voice actors on Animaniacs that I found really interesting. But uh, I guess he got them to do this, and they're saying, you know, are you sure this is for a kids show? And he's saying, yeah, yeah, it's, it's sure, just. Just, just say it. Everybody's been wanting to hear it for a long, long time. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. Animaniacs kind of felt like it was always kind of teasing with a little bit more of a mature audience. Pretty much pretty much, much like Ren and Stimpy, which arguably one could say it, it did exactly that. Like there's some... There's some freaky stuff in that in that show, but uh, uh, what, what... Ren and Stimpy, when it when it actually first got on Spike TV, whenever Spike TV was first coming up, I remember they got Ren and Stimpy as one of the cartoons for their uh, original broadcasting, and it, it was straight up TDMA. <laughs> it was just, I guess, it was some of the, I guess it was, I guess the animators for Ren and Stimpy actually had a lot of just straight up mature content that they hadn't used, and they just used that for their wow. Spike TV debut. <laughs> yeah, I, I can just remember when that that show was finally released on uh, DVD. That people got to see the people got to see those shows for what they really were, and they even even the original broadcast stuff. That I mean, there are moments that just made me laugh. Moments that just creeped me out. So, uh, but that's part <laughs> yeah. of its charm. Uh, what of the anime? Uh, did you uh, watch uh, like the? certain certain episodes or a full season uh what of the anime 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 did you watch honestly it just reminded me because the only the other thing uh the other thing i had for past is kind of tied to the thing that i have for future so oh. i don't want to do that animaniacs just in general was kind was of your, uh your was a big big childhood oh, okay. thing for me you know in the brain uh they had the uh, the squirrel character that whenever the kid went to see the Bambi, he cried, and she said, "Ah, Bambi's fine. I know her grandmother." (laughs) (laughs) That was a good scene. Uh, They had oh, one of my favorite, couple of my favorite bits were uh, instead of you know how other shows in the '90s always had those public service announcements, you know the after specials and whatnot. 
Animaniacs kind of parodied that, and they had the uh, wheel of, uh, like the wheel of morality, I think. You know, wheel of morality, turn, 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 to tell us a lesson that we should learn. And they were just, you know, dumb lessons about <laughs> socks or something. They weren't, they weren't telling you anything moral. If, if they were telling you anything about morals, it was usually the incorrect yeah. version. <laughs> oh, man. Okay. What what else you got or you want to see the the bright good idea bad idea was a good segment okay. too where they had you know, good idea going to going to France to be a mine bad idea going to uh it, I I don't remember <laughs> I just I you know I thought that uh, my uh, memory would be better but I you know maybe the uh, alcohol I indulged in last night is uh taking its effect well, and- <laughs> i'm sober sir and i uh i remember less than that but i i do remember that i i dig that show when it was originally out so right yeah for those that don't know i basically had a high school reunion yeah. yesterday and- awesome <laughs> uh anything else you want to yeah. add uh i i would i would suggest looking up uh yakko's yakko warner and his uh, there's some sort of rhyme he does about the United States or like all of the countries, and it's like Kazakhstan. It's just impressive what the voice actor is able to do. Other than that, I guess I'm done talking about Animaniacs. Clearly, clearly, I don't remember anything. I just remember liking it, and I, you know, did a project recently where we used the music from it. Nice. All right. Well, on that note, we'll tackle my choice for past, which is I rewatched certain episodes of of the first season of Deadwood. Uh, not too long sure. ago, I purchased uh, for really good price uh, all three seasons on DVD, and I was watching the episodes that had audio commentary on them, and uh, as well as kind of watching certain episodes anyway because it's just that damn good of a show, and. Uh, and I don't know if you're the kind of person who uh, usually gets into audio commentaries for movies or TV or whatever, but and they ver- and oh, they yeah. can vary in quality uh, because some of them can be really dry or really academic or just flat out boring. But uh, well, what I love what I love about audio commentaries is you know the ego stroking <laughs> that goes on in a lot of them. Between, between the actors or the directors will just say, you know, even if the even if there's a Rotten Tomato score of seven and all of the reviews are about this, you know, shitty actor, the director will be like, and he just did right. such a great job. I just love him and right. love working with him. Well, uh, <laughs> clearly uh, on Deadwood, none of the people involved had anything to uh, be ashamed of because they they did. I mean, it's it's still holds up so freaking well it's just one of the best best looking i'm best looking best acted and definitely best well written uh dramas ever made and uh there was a i, I really liked the pilot episode with uh, the creator david milch talking over it and uh just basically explaining like the origins uh for the show in in, in terms of just the pilot and uh, I think Keith Carradine and uh, I think Marley Parker talked on another episode. And then I think it, one of the later episodes, uh, it was Timothy Oliphant and uh, Ian McShane talking about it. And they are all just really great conversations. The the HBO box sets of their TV stuff 
is usually dependably very good. And, uh, and these, uh, Deadwood, especially on DVD is pretty much more definitely cheaper than it's ever been at any point. I think there are constant sales or whatever, but I would highly recommend renting those or maybe even just straight up blind buying it. If you've never seen it before and, uh, you know, watch the season through. It, it's it's great. Uh, if you're not a big fan of cursing, maybe you should just stay away. Yeah, that's that's one of the things I do remember uh, seeing because I don't know much about Deadwood other than the fact whenever I looked it up online when it came out was everybody was saying you know here's how Deadwood dialogue is. It was just oh a bunch yeah, of words in our hope. I mean, there's there's a uh, <laughs> there's like this one scene in the uh, elsewhere engine is uh, the the Ian McShane character is talking with this uh this character who's uh who's a uh, he's he's asian i forget you know which which country he's from but his is english is so limited that the only word he knows is basically cocksucker so there is this <laughs> conversation between them where they're trying to relay information about a uh a kind of a shipment deal that gone bad and all these iterations of that word between uh, McShane using it and this other character use it, it it's just it's it's shocking on one level but then it's it's hilarious because you you are getting the gist the gist of it so or the gist or however you say that so um uh yeah that that was my pick uh, as far as old old TV shows uh what a well if if the only thing that he can say is cocksucker, that's actually better than a lot of the cooks I worked with at Outback Steakhouse. That, but I think I think they don't even know a language; they only know the word pendejo. So I guess oh, that guy's got man. one up on them. All right, what about your pick for a present? Uh, uh, pick for TV. Uh, Avatar: mm. Legend of Korra is uh, it's a cartoon. I don't know if you know about uh, Avatar: The Last Airbender, which had a shitty Shyamalan movie. I know of the show. I know of the shitty movie, but I do understand that the the TV show uh, is really well regarded and at least has a has a uh, loyal and dependent uh, fan base. Uh, some of my some of my friends uh, actually watches that show. Yeah. Yeah, see, the thing uh, the thing now is because that audience for the old show has actually grown up, and I actually never even saw the TV show until after the movie, uh, you know, and I and I thought the movie wasn't actually that bad. It was I just kept falling asleep, right. <laughs> you know, I didn't even I, I never actually got through that whole movie. I don't think I just kind of blacked out, woke up, blacked out, woke up because it was that <laughs> boring to me. But then I then I watched the show and it's like this is, you know, this is it's become my Star Wars, you know, like for how people view Star Wars in the 70s, it's kind of become that for me. And it, it was just like, what, you know, I wasn't angry at the movie until after I saw it because you know, I had no emotional attachment to this show. I was just kind of right. curious. And then afterward, I became angry at Channel and I was like, this is the greatest thing I've ever seen. How did you fuck this <laughs> up that badly? <laughs> and uh which I, I know how it's because he tried to condense, you know, a season of 21 episodes that somehow mixes, you know, a plethora of characters like over, you know, like all of the bit characters even have interesting parts and come back later, even into the third season. Like, you know, almost everything is done for a reason. And he tried to condense that series, you know, 30 minute episodes for 21 
21 times and trying to condense that into 90 minutes because, you know, they figured it was a kid's yeah. audience. It, yeah. it, sounds, it, it kind of sounds like a case of spinning too many plates. Right. And, uh, the th you know, a lot of the criticism for it is all of the uh, kind of the ex expository dialogue where people are saying, like, we need to do this to get the MacGuffin this and that, uh, you know, in the movie where they actually are to what they have in the movie. It, I actually found it pretty faithful as far as plot, but just the way that it's presented, you know, the show is so good at presenting an emotional portrayal of these characters and tying everybody together in this universe. Whereas the movie is just a bunch of people saying like, we need to go here, 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 and then uh, find the penis head girl. I don't know if you've seen that. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen those online. The, uh, there's a there's a girl that lives in the Northern Water Temple online is known as Penis Head Girl because her she has this big hair that is shaped exactly like a giant <laughs> penis in a lot of people's opinions and you know she looks nothing like that in the cartoon which is another which is another thing that people got mad at they kind of whitewashed it a bit with you know having all the white actors be good and the Indian actors be which isn't I don't want to blame them too much for that because there's there's other stuff that goes on with the other nations at other points in the right. story. You know, there's it's not it's actually that's one of the, my favorite things about it. It's really it ends up not really being about good and evil. There's a lot of, you know, culture, you know, it, it's a it's a big promotion of cultural understanding actually is a big part of the show. But uh, anyway, to get into the future with Legend of Korra. It uh, it actually recently just Nickelodeon finally started just streaming it online as opposed to uh, having it on their TV cable schedule because they found out that, you know, the cable numbers weren't that great. Uh, it's it, Legend of Korra now is on its third season. Uh, Avatar Last Airbender had three 21 episode seasons and it was a self-contained thing that ended. Now they're going with the next Avatar. So it's uh, the, the main character has been reincarnated. And the reincarnation is what this series is about. Uh, and the the thing is, they, they couldn't find a big enough audience on TV. But, you know, online, it was still just as huge as it was with the old cartoon. Yeah. And I think the reason for that is because, you know, the people who have grown up with this show are now my age, you know, 24, or you know, somewhere around there. And, you know, none of us and a lot of us are in college and whatnot. And we don't want to pay a cable bill just to have one show. Right. So you know, we stream online, we have Netflix and whatever. And uh, I think that's I think they're, you know, they're they're having to learn that, you know, the the audience for Legend of Korra is not the same one as for SpongeBob SquarePants. Yeah. You know. <clears throat> but okay. Well, it, it, yeah, I, I um as when I get to my my uh, topic for present it's going to reveal that i am really not up to snuff with you know tv as much as i think i should be uh so uh but that's that's something i keep i, I keep reading about a lot through message board through some of my friends and they make a really strong case for as to why they love that show and uh, why they keep returning to it so um yeah, it actually got me interested in the philosophy of Taoism, which you know for a kid's show that's pretty impressive yeah. wow because <laughs> because you know the show is very very much themed on uh there's even you know not so subtle references to it in the show where these two characters named rava which is the light kind of this light uh spirit and then there's uh i forget what the dark spirit is named but you know whenever they're fighting they kind of look like the yin yang and there's little touches like that throughout the series 
because because uh, the creators uh, Brian DiMartino and uh, forget the other guy's name, but they're both you know pretty into Dallas philosophy and they they throw that in a lot. Yeah, I, you know, <clears throat> good deal. Um, anything you want to else add? Or should we move on? Um, I will say that season three so far has been much much better than season two, where they took some weird turns with some of the characters. Like, there's a character named Lin Bei Fong, which is an older uh, cop that, uh, you know, is, is pretty much, you know, Core's the main character, but as far as the badass female characters on the show go, I think she's kind of... Lin, uh, Lin Bei Fong is actually pretty much everybody's favorite in that aspect. Yeah. But uh, in season two, like, you know, they have this... In season one, it was this really... Her character is this really great detective who's, you know, head of the police department and you know, makes pretty much mostly wise decisions. Season two, she just did a whole bunch of, I don't want to spoil it for anybody, but she just did a whole bunch of stuff that made no sense. They made her character way more emotional than she was in the first season. The same with uh, the main character, Cora. In season one, you know, she has a she has a hot temper because she's a firebender, I guess, yeah. as the main thing. But in season two, they just took it way overboard where it was like, you know, she she was kind of being hit with these these challenges, these decisions, uh, as far as, you know, basically helping to run a government and uh, trying to avoid a war. And the, the actions that she takes in season two just don't make any sense, even for her character with how over the top, you know, emotional, emotionally angry she makes her, she makes her decisions. And, uh, you know, season three has definitely kind of come back around. And a lot of people's theory on that is, uh, you know, the creators of the show actually thought that Nickelodeon was only going to give them money for one season. And then when they said, oh, no, actually, we want you to renew this, they were kind of like, oh, now we have to come up with a whole new story. Right. Know? So that that's what a lot of people think happened is they were just kind of rushed. Season two is still pretty good. And uh, but, you know, season three has definitely been improved. And uh, you might like the character Varric, who's this... Uh, uh, kind of, what's the movie The Aviator about? Uh, with uh, Howard Hughes, I think. Yeah, Howard, he's kind of a Howard Hughes figure, but he's you know he's constantly coming up with these weird inventions that he's you know he's trying to make money off of everybody. <laughs> he's he's kind of central to starting the war conflict because he's like, well, I got to sell some machines, right. you know. He's he uh he and he's he's just a funny character because he has this little assistant that he always brings around with him and he he uh tries in the one scene he tries to distract people from something something a little bit nefarious that he's doing and he's wearing this bear suit with uh, his assistant is in the butt of this bear suit he's in the top and he says uh you know assistant do the thing and she just pours she farts money on the street <laughs> out of this bear suit <laughs> oh man i i'm really oh, needing to check this out then uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. The humor is great in that show too. That's what, that's a big reason people like it, like myself. Okay. Anyway, what's what's your pick for present? Uh, my pick for present, um, it is going to be uh, a show that was recently had its first season on uh, Showtime, and that's called Penny Dreadful. And uh, I've not heard of that. Uh, yeah, it, it's 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 a co-British and American uh, production. And it's on show, Showtime. Apparently, doesn't get as much attention as far as you know a lot of the HBO shows, unless of course it's talking about Homeland or or uh, or, or uh, something else like that. But Penny, I, I was just you know kind of searching uh, through 
my on-demand channels because I am one of those people still dumb enough to subscribe to cable and was just looking for something to watch after Game of Thrones. I didn't say that. I didn't say you were dumb enough. I just said I'm poor. Poor enough. <laughs> gotcha. Um, after Game of Thrones is uh, recent season wrapped up, I mean, for a while, I didn't really try any new shows for some reason. I, I don't know if I was waiting for something in particular or if I kept putting it off or that thing where I can just blame work. And uh, my inability to be active after coming home just being completely exhausted. Yeah. Uh, but it it uh, it aired uh, earlier this year, I think, in uh, April and then wrapped up at the end of June. And what it seems to be – I've only watched like the first couple of episodes. What it seems to be is – have you ever seen the movie or read the graphic novel From Hell, which is like a fictional take on Jack the Ripper? No, I've heard of it. I haven't, you know, really. Well, let's just say that this movie kind of covers some similar ground in which it takes place during, uh, I want to say, like 19th century, like uh, maybe 18th or 17th century Victorian area London, where, like in the or like in the recent uh, Guy Ritchie uh, Sherlock Holmes movies, where London is portrayed. As this really kind of grimy, dirty place, despite all of the uh, enhancements they're making through their culture as far as technology or whatever, or just being around uh, trying trying to function during possible wartime. And uh, you've got these characters uh, mostly played by the leads, uh, I think one I think Josh Harden plays like this man who's also a good marksman. Uh, Ava Green plays this uh, this woman who's. I, I, it's kind of hard to explain what what her powers or her abilities are. Timothy Dalton uh, plays this uh, African explorer, and uh, uh, Dalton and Green enlist Hardnett uh, to search for uh, Dalton's daughter, who uh, apparently is Mina Harker. Who, if you've read Bram Stoke. Uh, Dracula by Bram Stoker, you realize that that's a character from that novel. And what this show apparently is doing is uh, pushing these three characters into situations where they happen upon characters uh, from um, uh, British uh, fiction, like uh, Mary Shelley's Frankenstein or Oscar Wilde's The Picture of Dorian Gray. And so far, I mean, I can't fault the production design. I mean, it looks and sounds uh, fantastic, and it's not boring. I, I just it's it's a little too early for me to see where they're going with this, and if if it's going to be uh, if it's going to be something meaningful, or if it's just going to be good old fashioned, well produced escapism, which you know, I don't know uh, the the. Every every cable network like Cinemax or HBO has those shows where uh, subject material can be transcendent and and mean something more like Game of Thrones or something. But then, like say, uh, one of my ma- my favorite shows is Strike Back on Cinemax, which is just basically another co-American, co-British production, which is just basically action movie, action movie and TNA. Uh, uh, taking place in foreign locales and stuff like that. Like it's it's nothing but pure escapism. That's the vibe I'm getting from Penny Dreadful so far. So other than that, uh, like I said, I've only watched the first couple of episodes, but it is it is 
it is uh you know fascinating it, it it's it's uh, got me to watch it so far but um other than that i think i really need to brush up on a lot of shows race a lot of shows right now so yeah, i'll try well, to this- the show that I'm brushing up on, I need to see Game of Thrones still. I haven't caught an episode of that. But the show I'm actually brushing up on on Netflix right now is uh, Breaking Bad, which I'm on season four towards the end. Yeah. It's getting cool. Good. Yeah. Uh, a lot of people say that they like, I guess, four is their favorite season. I can see why. I actually, uh, I think it might be mine, but another one would be season one just because of the way that it hooked me into it. You know, it, for me, it actually kind of lulled a little bit in seasons two and three. And yeah, one was very, very strong. I mean, you got certain seasons where they try to find their footing, and it doesn't really occur until the second. But Breaking Bad's first season, I mean, it's it's one of those rare exceptions where it was just so damn good from the from the very start. Right. At least in that first, I, I I'm kind of working through it myself. That's that's I'm, I'm like currently going through the second season myself. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I agree with you on the first season, so. Has, has a Saul appeared yet? Uh, not yet. Okay. Not yet. He's, he's kind of, whenever you see him, he's actually a lot like the, uh, Varric character in Legend of Korra. Okay. They're, they're, they're a lot alike in, in certain ways, just as kind of like slimy, but kind of humorous, uh, you know, guys that are good with money and, uh, you know, uh, manipulation, all that. Right. Okay, well, now that we're, I think we're pretty much done with uh, TV, and we're going to go into video games, where I'm hoping, this is the thing, I don't know if you know this about me, I'm not always current on, you know, the new stuff, and and while I do have a selection for a recent game that I've personally purchased, I don't own any of the next-gen systems, and uh, I don't know if you do or not, but uh, you... I don't own any of... I don't own any of the last-gen systems. I own a PC where I only just started getting Xbox 360 and PS3-type games on Steam. Well, you know what? If you're on a if you're on a computer, a gaming rig of any particular sort, that makes nope. you that makes you next gen, as far as I'm concerned. It's it's not really next gen. Uh, it it's it can handle. I found you know it can handle Tomb Raider, but if I set it on anything above normal uh, visual settings, it'll you know my computer will die. All right. It's just an Asus laptop that I'm using as a as a gaming machine. What I originally got it for was just to edit uh, uh, Adobe Premiere, you know, little video clips together if I wanted to. But uh, instead, I'm using it as a gaming machine. So okay, all right. Well, let's start off with you, sir. What uh, what old game have you played, or have, what what is an old game that you would like to talk about as far as your past option? Well, you mentioned uh, maybe things that people maybe don't talk about very much, and uh, one game that I remember very well from childhood, but nobody really talks about now, is uh, Uniracers. Yeah, I do. I do remember that one. Yeah, and it, there wasn't too much to it, but there was, you know, it was it was very. Uh, that was one of the first games I played where instead of just straight up racing, like you know, back in that, uh, I grew up in the '90s pretty much, and you know, they had Cruising USA, uh, stuff like that, where it was just straight up racing games, or they had, uh, you know, NES had Excite Bike, which I guess is kind of similar to Uniracers, except uh, you know, Uniracers had more. Uh, I get, I, it kind of looks like claymation animations almost. I don't know if it is or not on the Uniracers. I, I don't think it is. It just kind of looks like it. But it, it, that was that's a very 90s game. 
the way that it's laid, the way that it's visualized in the music and uh, the way it's laid out, which is just, uh, you don't really go around a straight track. You go around, it has a lot of, you go around tracks that have a lot of loops. They're often, uh, you know, they're checkered little tracks and uh, they, they loop around. It's left to right, but they loop around. They go all sorts of weird directions. There's actually like, like little twists in the road where your unicycle will like go up and down and up and down. And uh, I don't know, it's it's just a fun uh, visual game, and uh, it was one of the first ones I played that was really heavy into uh, doing, you know, giving you points for doing a bunch of tricks. I remember. Yeah. What, what do you remember? What system that came out on? Super Nintendo was what I played it on. I don't. I think that's it was exclusive to that. It might have been on Genesis. I don't think so, but you know, maybe. I played on Super Nintendo. Ah. <laughs> uh, well, I do remember. I mean, I don't. I don't remember playing it, but I do remember when that game came around and I've seen plenty of game footage on it. And it, yeah, it, it almost made me think of Sonic the way that the tracks would, like you said, loop and take these weird little, uh, take these weird little detours or whatever. Did it, what, what about controls? I mean, did, did it control very well or, um, the last, time or their limitations? It, the last time I played it, it controlled pretty well. The one thing is, and it might be just me being incompetent. Sometimes that's it. Because there, there have been games where everybody hates it, and I'm actually decent enough at it that I don't care too much. And there have been games where everybody loves it. But, it, like, let's say Ninja Gaiden, even though I haven't played it that much. Like, you know, people that love it, love it. But uh, I'm... Maybe maybe I pretend that the controls are to blame because I suck at it or something, you know. <laughs> right. But, you know, Uniracers. I remember. So maybe that's what's going on with Uniracers. But uh, the only thing I had trouble with is sometimes it would if if you didn't go fast enough, you'd kind of stall in a certain area. I think, huh. and I would end up going going backwards instead of forwards sometimes. The the way that I was controlling it, I don't. I think that you just press right to go, I want to say, because it's just, you know, again, it's just left-right game, and then you kind of jump and you can do tricks with the buttons. But when you say Sonic, yeah, that actually makes a lot of sense because it, it, it moves really, really fast, too. The backgrounds move past you really fast. You know, if, if uh, Super Nintendo ever wanted to make a claim about we also have blast processing, they could have done yeah. that game. <clears throat> right. Uh, and that's why I was asking about you know the system because it may I mean there was this there was this push that you know Sega games ran a little faster at the at the just because of the way the system was made and I, I didn't play a whole lot of racing stuff on Super Nintendo but I do remember that 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 game that that platform had its issues as far as slowdown or as if it had a lot of objects on the screen, you would have some lagging or stuff like that. Well, there was also a lot of Mode 7 games on Super Nintendo that looked kind of slower, too. Like, Mark yeah. looks pretty slow if you look at it now. There yes, it does. That, like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, F well, I guess, not, I guess it must not have been necessarily Mode 7 because F-Zero looked fast at the time, I think. Yeah, I, I, think, it, I think it holds up. Yeah. Um, did the... Did the the image of unicycles with no riders kind of throw you off or, uh, or did, was that ever, or was that just, uh, something that you just ran with? That was something I just ran with. Cause I mean, that was, uh, objects becoming kind of personified was, was not that uncommon in cartoons and stuff like that. And it's a pretty cartoony game. 
I mean, they didn't give it like a pair of beady eyes on the seat or a, no. or didn't make it talk or something stupid no, it, shit it, like it, that. It just moves around like it has some sort of a personality. Oh, okay. But it doesn't. It doesn't. It doesn't have eyes or anything. It just. It kind of like uh, you know. Again, with the Sonic thing, I think that if you stop for a while, it'll kind of like the the head of the the seat of the unicycle will turn over to you like that's its head and be like, you know, why aren't you going? Right. Thanks. Nice. And uh, the other, I remember there being in the menus were very much, uh, for, for whatever reason, like the way that uh, Mario has the track names kind of based on mushrooms and stars and flowers and all that. Uh, the track names in Uniracers is based on animals. Like there's there's a few that have a little picture of a frog next to them. There's a few that have like a picture of a pink bunny next to them, I think. Yeah. So I don't, I don't I don't remember what the significance of that was or why there were animals as the, you know, there was like Hopper was the name of a frog and that was the name of a level or maybe. And uh, the, the Uniracers, I'm pretty sure, had their own little names, too. You know, they were just, all they were were just different colors. But OK, kind of, so kind of like Power Rangers or Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles. They're not that much different in personality, really. But here's different colors. <laughs> right. <laughs> awesome. <clears throat> All right. Well, my pick is a game that I've lived with for about, I want to say about less than a decade, but I've recently picked it back up uh, because it's available on the iOS uh, for, I now use an iPod Touch, and it is uh, Fantasy Star 2. Have you have you ever played this one? I'm notorious on Pixel Bit for not liking uh, turn-based uh, RPGs. Oh yeah. yeah. Okay. Well, this isn't going to work. It's not. It's going to not going to work for you for a variety of reasons, which I'm about to get into. Right. Um, the, only, the only ones I can really tolerate too much are Paper Mario and Pokemon, because they're you know Pokemon because it's just so simple, and I, I kind of understand the uh, rock paper scissors way that the battles work. Right. And Paper Mario because there's an element of platforming in there, and the story kind of helps it for me. Right. Well. <laughs> Uh, the thing about Fantasy Star 2 is is that uh, it, it, it's a flawed game. It has not stood the test of time uh, like a lot of like a lot of these RPGs uh, from this 16-bit era tend to, uh, or 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 at least it has it has a good reputation despite its flaws. Uh, I'm a guy who, for some reason, avoided RPGs until I was like in my mid 20s, as far as uh, getting into game genres, I'm not particularly sure why. I tried Final Fantasy VII for the PlayStation during college, and I was just thinking, "Oh, why do I have to wait my turn? I've got a sword that's bigger than me. I could cut that bastard down. Why don't I just do it?" <laughs> and it and it just seemed like it was really one to tell a story. So I backed off. Maybe I played some other games that had a much bigger story, more outlandish stories, like maybe the Metal Gear Solid stuff. But I remember listening, like I said, uh, uh, listening to podcasts. OneUp.com had uh, Retronauts. And I think it was for their Valentine's Day episode for 2007. They talked about the Fantasy Star franchise. I previously had never heard about it. But the enthusiasm from the speakers uh, were so great that I thought, well, I definitely have to check this out. So I would go out and buy like the Sega Genesis compilations for PlayStation 2 and try them out. 
and uh, eventually would buy compilations for GBA. Uh, during college, my brother had bought a Sega Dreamcast, so we eventually got a, a similar compilation for like, and that I think that had like mostly Genesis stuff on it. Um, I learned a lot about how the turn-based mechanic works because the in some ways this game is pretty simple and it's set up you you get an idea of attack uh, of attack and basically how the turn thing basically works but another uh another uh characteristic of rpgs is the the way that grinding works and Fantasy Star 2 is notorious for being extremely grind-heavy. Like, I think you probably spend 90% of the time grinding it. And it, it, it's so strong, in fact, that I've never actually finished the game. Like, I probably got pretty far with the GBA console, the GBA version, since I would just take that handheld with me and just start it up, play a little, grind for a little bit, and then go through a dungeon or whatever. But it is a notoriously hard game, especially in its dungeon areas. And it had, surprisingly, a very dark and mature story for a game like that. And um, like I said, I've never been able to finish it, but I recently put it back on my iPod Touch. Uh, throughout this summer, I am I work for a custodial company. We're stripping wax off of floors and putting new coats on it. So there's a lot of time to waste right so for so for some reason i didn't want to bring my playstation vita to work because i figured one something might happen to it or two i would be really unproductive so (laughs) i could basically put it on the ipod which i basically use for listening to music or podcasts or whatever and i I could just turn on fancy star 2 play for a little bit and then uh, during those breaks and then get back to work and it's still very playable but going back to it i'm realizing this game is still so limited. Uh, for example, it's got weird names for the the weapons and the apparel that you buy. It doesn't tell you how it will affect your character as far as affecting their stats until you buy them and equip them. And they're unreasonably expensive, even from the very start. So, which is why the game just seriously wants you to grind for you know forever in a day. Even when you get tech powers or just magic powers, they've got these weird names like Xan or Viso or some weird thing where it doesn't even tell you what the abilities is. Does it affect one enemy? Does it affect all of them when you get into combat? It's it's just so freaking weird. And you get into the dungeons and they're kind of impressively done where it's got it's it's top down and you've got these three D graphical overlays uh, on top of it. But they're so big, and there's always it's just like nothing but random encounters. So yeah. I'm not particularly sure why a game that I've never beaten, and why a game that is so obscure or, or so uh, uh, incoherent in so many aspects, why this would be the game that got me on to RPGs. And I'm guessing it's because it it introduced me to like the basic forms of turn-based combat and i I basically i I went on the internet found a fan site that went into detail with strategy guides and stuff like this and apparently when this game was first released for the genesis it came with a hint book because the game is just so damn big and so convoluted you need an actual guide to go along with it right but the good thing about fantasy star 2 is it got me onto the rpg 
uh, genres, and uh, I and uh, I was able to uh, get into a lot more games because of that. So that's my pick for the past. And uh, like I said, it has not really stood the. It seems like it's in dire need of a remake if they ever want to do something like that, and they probably don't. But uh, at this particular point, the fourth game, and some people would say like the last game, which is the Final Fantasy Star Four, the end of the millennium, is very well done. It's 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 easily replayable, and uh, that would be the one that I would recommend people go to. Uh, but two, man, only if you like punishment in the in the form of grinding, <laughs> don't bother. Yeah, and that's a lot of things you mentioned about that game too. Like, is is a lot of kind of the pitfalls for me with RPGs. Whenever you mentioned the Retronauts podcast, uh, which I loved too when it was on One Up. Whenever yeah. they, whenever they were hyping, I remember uh, EGM actually was really hyping up uh, Fantasy Star Online for the Dreamcast for a while. Back in the early 2000s. Yeah. So that's that's actually the first place I saw Fantasy Star. Um, and I, I actually thought it was just an MMO. I didn't even know that they were RPGs made before that game came out. But uh, I remember any time that uh, a lot of these RPGs, they are so hyped up that they, you know, they get tens across the boards in all of these different publications. And then, of course, I get suckered in because I figure, well... I guess that means it's the perfect game for everybody. And then I end up playing it and it's like, oh, right, I hate these. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, it, it feels like certain games can have a barrier of entry or maybe it's just nostalgia coloring some people's, uh, you know, their feelings about the game. I don't know. Right. And I and I have the kind of the opposite about nostalgia. Whenever you mentioned that there was a hint book for it, a, a release with the original game, that got me thinking of, uh, I've talked to Kerry Woodham, on Pixelbit a couple of times about Earthbound and how he, he didn't like it too much because that came with a hint book too because it was so convoluted. Wow, well, I didn't know about that. I haven't played that game. See, I, I did play that game. I actually rented it uh, when I was a little kid, and I actually I remember that game specifically making me cry because I could not figure out where to go. Uh. <laughs> so that's, that's, one of, that's one of my main memories of RPGs is that game, so that doesn't help. <laughs> It made you cry because you just you just didn't know where to go. Yeah, and that was, that was in the day where you know you rented something from Blockbuster. That was your entertainment for a week, and mm. no manual. Just you know, you you're you're on your own. Yeah, I was just stuck in like the pol- there was like a police barrier or something, and you couldn't go into this certain area. You could only go into this carnival tent, and I couldn't figure out what to do in the carnival tent. I I think, and yeah, I just and I was just stuck in this. Uh, Stuck in this little boxed, uh, boxed off area of the game for the entire weekend, <laughs> <laughs> just trying to figure it out and just getting frustrated and yeah. Oh man! <laughs> so it wasn't it wasn't even the turn based thing, which uh, which which I've sort of gotten more used to. I guess I guess as I get older, I'm sort of more into the idea of kind of like laying back and just pressing a button to you know make actions happen and strategizing and all that. So I, I can see myself getting into RPGs in the near future more so but yeah. that game specifically i didn't even get to the turn-based combat i just walked around for a little bit asking townspeople about whatever and then just getting nowhere <laughs> yeah oh man but let's let's move away from the painful stuff what <laughs> what have you what have you got as far as a present option for gaming uh i'm gonna go again with the most recent thing that i played which was arkham city nice or uh which 
I liked, uh, I think I liked it more than Asylum, but I'm kind of, well, I guess the thing is Asylum is more contained and I felt like, I felt like I completed everything that I wanted to in that one, whereas City, there's still a lot to do, but I just didn't feel like doing it. I, I, and it might be because it's such a big map, and I actually, the one thing I don't like about those open world games is having to travel from one point to the other. Or yeah. Try, trying to find something 3D using a 2D map was the main reason I just kind of gave up, because there was something, I beat the game, I love the, I, I like the story, at, at least as far as the ending goes, better than Asylum. Uh, but as far as the stuff you can do after the game, uh, all of the little side missions. I didn't get the Riddler trophies this time because I got kind of tired of having to traverse the big map mm-hmm. and without a vehicle, you know. And yeah. I couldn't get used to. Uh, have you played this or? Oh, I- I've spent the greater part of the last two <laughs> months doing. Uh, played the game and completed it earlier this year, and then every now and then I would log on and hunt for Riddler trophies. And until two weeks ago, I was doing that. Nice. <laughs> I, I I think I got maybe the, the game said I was like seventy percent done as far as collectibles, but yeah. that's that just shows you just they they just cram so much. I mean, I, I believe I got my entertainment, I, my I got my you know the entertainment value out of it, uh, and it was definitely worth the money I spent for it. But yeah, that that game just ultimately wears you down and. Right collectibles at some particular point uh they're they're you're just collecting them for you know the sake of getting them i i i I, I would just rather it's like collecting feathers in an assassin creed game don't don't you don't need to do it but i mean right i don't know well like what i was what actually what i was more interested in was i was really interested in the dead shot stuff they were having you do like where yeah. you get a phone you get a phone call from uh, mr zaz and you have to go somewhere i love that part and i love trying to see but the the thing that really wore me down i think was uh there's something with mr freeze's character where you have to find his his uh, wife his wife right and i i did that but only after i went online and figured out that wherever i was supposed to go was you know right in the area that i was looking at but of course using a 2d map to figure out a 3d area again just frustrated the crap out of me and i just got tired of like having to pause and look at the map and then i'm outside of the little area where his wife's supposed to be yeah and you mentioned something about the difficulties of of going all over that map that that that's a game that really could have benefited from some fast travel spots yeah, and it doesn't. It, it makes you. It makes you do that. I mean, at least when you finally master, when you finally get that upgrade that lets you, I, I guess you grapple onto a point. You press the right. A button, and then you can fly. You can just launch off from there. That and kind I of. I have that, but like the the way that you get that was yeah. so frustrating to me. That yeah. that stupid course where you have to that <laughs> dive. I can never get used to that dive thing and trying to like maneuver him. Yes. Yeah, that 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 made me angry, and I just thought, well, I I gotta get this ability if I want to progress, so I gotta keep doing it and drive my driving myself crazy. So, um, yeah, uh, I think I enjoyed it just a little bit more than Asylum. Like, I think it it has a better ending than uh, definitely than Asylum, where turning Joker into this big old boss kind of felt 
kind of felt a little cheesy to me. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I do think that getting through the areas in Asylum was a lot easier. Yeah. And uh, I, I think maybe the rogues gallery was handled a little bit better. I did love playing as Catwoman, though. I found her character a little bit weird to control going back and forth between her and Batman sometimes. So, like, I like the whip, but uh, I didn't like what uh, hers was even worse for traversing, which I think is. What yeah, happened. I kind of wish it didn't penalize you from not hitting those button prompts. Yeah, well, I, I just kind of wish they didn't have those button prompts and she could just kind of swing around like Spider-Man with yeah, that whip. Exactly. <laughs> but uh. But yeah, I, I did enjoy that game. But yeah, I've pretty much had my fill. I don't know when and if I'll ever try the new game plus thing, which which you unlock after playing the game a first time. But uh, we'll right. see. Um, does it make you excited for Arkham Knight? Uh, if I get, I'm actually. Uh, I just downloaded Arkham Origins to start playing that. I haven't gotten around to it, but uh, yeah, I guess it does make me excited for Arkham Knight. But the, the thing is, somebody, uh, I think Julian on one of the Nerds Without Pants podcasts was kind of saying like, enough with the Batman games. Let's have another superhero that's you know <laughs> has a good game going for him. And I, I agree. I kind of want to play as you know. I I, I really want another uh, Spider-Man that uses the mechanics from Spider-Man Two, where you know, yeah, it's more realistic swinging. Which that that actually I actually bought a used copy of that and uh, found out that the GameCube controller that I have, uh, the the L button sometimes doesn't doesn't work, which is really frustrating in that game because you run with either R or L and you have to swing with one of those two buttons as well. So that yeah, I have to kind of choose between which one I want to do, which is annoying. <laughs> Well, uh, I I do enjoy. Well, hopefully in Arkham Knight it looks like. Like city, you're going to get a big area, but the Batmobile should help you right. travel through it a whole lot faster. But um, even with the Batmobile, I, I hope they they put fast travel stuff in it. What were you about to say? Yeah, I, I hope they put fast travel stuff in it too. But it, it it is kind of funny though. The one thing that does make me laugh about that Batmobile is that you know Batman's kind of is known as being this discreet character, yet he's driving around in a tank. <laughs> Straight up shooting missiles at people. <laughs> well, it's he, he's uh, he's yeah. I mean that's the that, that's a really good point. But it's kind of like James Bond being the ultimate spy, despite the fact that everyone knows who the hell he is. So, uh, right. <laughs> uh, all right. Anything else you want to say about Arkham City? Have, uh, no. Um. Honestly, if I say anything more about it, I'll just, I'll just remember having to dive again and just get really mad. <laughs> Fair enough. Uh, my present option for gaming is uh, Rogue Legacy, which uh, earlier this past week came out for the PS3 and uh, I think PS4, PS3, and Vita. And I specifically got it for the Vita, which, judging from Spelunky and uh, Gun Slugs, has pretty much become a roguelike uh gaming machine for me uh and that was a genre that up until spelunky i've been avoiding because the whole idea of going through a game dying and losing everything despite uh despite certain certain things that are uh 
kept in uh, as far as progress. Like if you die in Spelunky, you lose all your money, you lose all your items, but it has a logbook where it shows you what characters you encountered, how far you progressed in a level. You still have to go to the beginning and start over again. Uh, but I, and I thought that that was a concept that I was not going to be able to. It was it was just designed to do nothing but piss me off. <laughs> um, but eventually, I got through to Spelunky, and I've eventually made it through the last world. I haven't finished yet, but I've gotten good enough at the game that I can actually make a decent run at it. Uh, Rogue Legacy so far, uh, it, it reminds me of of Castlevania in some regards and it also has that kind of fair but not fair uh, but uh not fair uh quality of a rogue like where you die you get to keep your money but the next character you play is a descendant or a blood relative of the person that died and you got all these little classes to choose from and go through this un- at times very unforgiving castle so I, I get that the whole idea is to uh, that in these games you're going to die regardless, but I like the fact that the game takes death more as a positive rather than negative, despite the fact that when you die, you're like, oh, shit. Yeah. Uh, but I, actually, um, I was looking at the footage just now, and actually What's a Cow has done a Let's Play of this, I believe. Oh, really? I didn't know about that. I think Yeah, I think he did it for plus 10 damage. Uh, he did a... I, looking at the footage, I think he did. Okay. And, uh, but uh, as far as roguelikes go, I still need to get to uh, Super Meat Boy, which I haven't started playing yet. Oh, but. man. Yeah, I played a little bit of that on uh, PC, and it it reached a point with one level. I think it's like the first boss level where you're trying to outrun someone and just parkour over shit, and I just got so, so <laughs> upset with it that I just stopped. But... <laughs> Otherwise, I thought a pretty solid game. Yeah. Oh man! But Rogue Legacy. W- when you say you start over, I haven't actually played that many roguelikes. So when you say that you you die and you come back with your money, what does money? Money, get- money. Uh, like you can buy upgrades for your stats. Like you can upgrade your HP, your magic. You can unlock different classes. You can, whenever you enter. You can unlock merchants that will upgrade your armor or upgrade your spells. You can even, I think, I, I'm pr- I'm a little unclear as to whether I'm paying the guy or not. You can actually get a guy to lock down a dungeon so that the dungeon you played through before can you can still enter enter through it again. But the problem is you got to spend your money wisely because each time you enter the castle, the guy guarding it will ask for whatever money you've got left, and then you enter into the castle with nothing. So you've got to collect as much as you can and spend it wisely and spend as much of it as you can. There were a couple playthroughs where I had like 300 gold, and I had no choice but to give the, the jerk at the castle uh, <laughs> all of my money. Although you do eventually unlock a perk where you can – lessen the amount that you have to pay them right but uh but that's that's what the the money is kept for i mean uh just just making yourself better and stronger so you don't go it's not like you're playing ghosting goblins through a roguelike because that's something i would just stay the hell away from (laughs) if that was the case i've been watching uh the game grumps on youtube play through super ghosting oh god i think they're still in the first level oh god i tried that for like you know, I had like two or three player playthroughs, and then I returned it to, to the video store. What was I even thinking? 
<laughs> to the video game store when I was a kid. I, I, I never could get into it, it. It just astonishes me that there are people that can actually make it all the way through a game like that. Right. I mean, did you just run to piss yourself off? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh. I, yeah. I wonder if there's a speed run of roguelike or rogue legacy where just there's a speed run where they don't even upgrade. They just go through it. <laughs> Man, I really don't see how you, you, um, maybe there's a way to do it, but it's beyond me. I know that for sure. Yeah. I've I've seen I've seen Mega Man playthroughs where you know they use a bunch of uh, they kind of they screw with the game's code to make it so that Mega Man's kind of flying through the air for most of the level. Uh, <laughs> so maybe they I mean that's one way. But yeah. uh, I know whenever you mention spend you know using money to spend on upgrades, that's one of the things in games I'm really shitty at doing. Yeah. So whenever I get money, like you mentioned, Castlevania was kind of like this, and the the newer Castlevanias I have on DS, I'll just I'll, I am so I'm stingy with money in real life, and it translates <laughs> over to games. It translates over to games because I'll just be like, well, if I need something somewhere down the line, I better save all this up, and I'll get to a final boss and not even realize I needed whatever upgrade that everybody else would have just you know got. Yeah. Just kind of like, no, nah, I'm gonna save my money into you know. Same thing with uh, I save I save my money pretty much and just buy nothing but potions in a lot of those games and then I'll just turn I'll just turn every boss battle into a war of attrition. Right. Uh, but anyway, I would uh, recommend that. I, uh, you, I mean, uh, you 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 haven't played it, right? That's obviously you've been asking me questions about it, so obviously not. But I would highly recommend that. I think. It's it was a PC game first. It was released last year, so maybe it's hit some Steam sales since then. So, um, and yeah. it's not it's not a it's not a very demanding game graphics wise. So I think you'd be able to I think you'd be able to play with no problem. Right now, I'm kind of saving money though for uh, see if I can get Shovel Knight, which I've been yeah. watching. That's another one I've been watching Game Grunts play, and I really that one looks awesome to me. It, it kind of has the same similar kind of eight bit, but not graphics that rogue legacy looks like it has yeah yeah good deal all right well that's i'm said all i could about rogue legacy so i'll just keep soldiering and dying through that one and we will (laughs) move on to books now this can be not just novels but comic books as well i don't know if i made that uh, clear in either yeah, the previous so that, episode. Uh, okay. Yeah. Uh, well, let's start with you, sir. What is your past option for reading material? Unfortunately, not comic books, which I want to get into some more. But uh, <laughs> okay, the only ones the only ones I own are Watchmen and uh, Batman Noel, which is a uh, Christmas Carol kind of uh, Batman take on Christmas Carol. Huh. Dude. I've never seen. I never read that. I've read Watchmen though. Yeah, Watchmen was good. Uh, Batman Noel is, uh, you know, you know exactly where it's going, obviously, but there's kind of like, you know, uh, uh, Watchmen's actually a good way to kind of describe this. You know how they had the one guy reading the uh, the tales about the pirates that kind of mirrored what was going on in the actual Watchmen? Right. It's kind of the same way where, you know, the Christmas Carol is kind of mirroring what's going on in Batman's life. Huh. Hold in a similar kind of a similar structure, and the the artwork is awesome. I think it's uh, Lee Bramejo. Uh, yes, kind of a Hispanic sounding name, if I remember. Let me look up what his name is. But the artwork, uh, let's see. Yeah, Lee Bramejo. I think is how you pronounce that. Like like with you, I, I, I'm not even gonna try. 
<laughs> just but, just make your best guess and we'll move on. Right. Uh, but yeah, his artwork is amazing. And sometimes it gets a little bit too real and the they have kind of a button nose on Superman, which looks kind of ridiculous. Yeah. But other than that, I mean, the artwork's great. It's a good story. So I like that. But my choice for past is... And I think I want to say that there is a different book that's actually my favorite that I'm forgetting because I think since I've read this in high school, something else has taken its place. But uh, my favorite book, uh, Clockwork Orange. Oh man, I I have seen the movie multiple times. I have not yet read the book. Uh, the the you, movie actually cuts out the last chapter in the original British uh, author's version of the book. Yeah. yeah. So how does uh, I mean ending differences aside? Uh, what is the experience of reading the book like? Uh, if you if you watch the movie, I mean, the the movie, honestly, aside from that whole, you know, cutting out the last chapter, which uh, Stanley Kubrick did that one because it was released. I think the book was actually originally released in America that way anyway. OK. And two, because, you know, it's having the having it end on uh, chapter 20 uh, out of 21 total. If you were to read the original version, uh, makes it a lot darker. But, you know, it's Stanley Kubrick. So it makes sense. Right. But uh, the, the 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 really the difference between the movie and the book are not that many. The One of them is I think when he when he hits that woman in the face with a statue of a penis. Do you remember yeah. That? Yeah, I remember. In the book, it's actually less graphic. It's a, a statue of, I believe, Beethoven that he. Okay. Yeah. There, there's a few like little changes like that, and then you know, of course, if you read the book, you have to know that there's. You have to kind of read into they. They have that made up language where it's kind of Russian with English. You know, they they describe uh, they describe certain beverages as devotchka, or you know, they they use the term. Uh, we're going to go find a little bit of horror show, meaning, you know, we're about to go beat somebody up or whatever. But Right. Uh, if you've seen the movie, in essence, I think you've kind of read the book. It, it really is like a very, very faithful adaptation. Okay. From what I remember. It, it, it's got that same kind of do- – the the way that uh, – that, uh, uh, Malcolm McDowell's character, he had this way of dialogue, especially when he was speaking to his uh, his droogs. Right. Like that weird kind of uh, cogni speak. I mean, that's that's in the novel as well. Oh, yeah. It's probably, uh, probably laid on a little bit thicker in the novel, I would imagine. Because, <laughs> you know, you're reading it as opposed to whatever else. That's that's actually one of the things that they, they, that they tell you if you choose that book. Because I, I actually read that as a uh, – this is one of the – the highest graded projects I ever got, the highest grade on a project I ever got back was this thing I did for a clockwork orange where our English professor had us write kind of a book report or review type thing. And then we also made a, uh, at the time it was MySpace. We made a MySpace page of like what the characters would be like later on after the book, which uh, that was one of the more fun projects I've had to do. But I actually chose that book for a, a, a uh, project on American novels and had to kind of uh, convince my British professor, which I think that's where I got lucky because, you know, he didn't mind me choosing an an English book for an American literature assignment because I kind of, I I tied it to like uh, whenever they take his uh, kind of his sense of, uh, there's that scene where they basically drug Alex, the main character, so that he acts morally now, and if he doesn't, he kind of vomits or gets sick. 
Huh. And, uh, and I kind of related that to, you know, certain issues with free will and the death penalty somehow, I think. I, I mean, yeah. stretch it a little bit, but uh, uh, there was a... Uh, do you remember that scene where they kind of where they bring the woman out and he's trying, he's kind of reaching for her boobs and he can't because he's getting physically ill. Yeah. Right. You know, there's a, there's a lot of uh, free will versus how many people do we want acting with free will if they're going to act this way? Cause you know, he's an awful, awful person. Right. Literally a 15 year old in the book. He's 15 years old and he's a rapist. So. Oh, good. Yeah. Lord. <laughs> hey, like, <laughs> Sometimes you're thankful for adaptations taking some liberties to, you know. Yeah, there's there's no way Cooper got through, got away with a lot, but there is no way he can get away with a 15 year old protagonist for that story. Yeah. <laughs> oh man, well, good deal. I I, I need to. I, I really still feel as though I need to read the book if even if the the novel. I mean, even if the movie covered a lot of the novels. Yeah, so. I mean, I recommend it. It's uh, it's uh, I th- I think if I remember correctly, it's kind of split into three parts where there's you know seven chapters in each part basically from from what yeah. I recall. It, it might not literally be part one, part two, part three, but that's kind of how I read it anyway. Yeah. Um. Good deal. Uh, my past selection is uh. The Big Sleep by Raymond Chandler. Have you read this? I have not read that. I am unfortunately, you know, a lot of the books that I have read are either Harry Potter or from high school. So I'm essentially, uh, you know, that whatever woman that you know that likes Nickelback and listens and reads only Harry Potter books, <laughs> I guess I'm her equivalent. <laughs> I, literacy, aside from the fact that I, in high school I also did read Brideshead Revisited and some Hemingway novels and stuff that's more, I guess, intellectually satisfying than whatever young adult fictions I've been mostly reading. <laughs> right. Um, I am uh, a big fan of the movie that this was based on. It starred uh, Humphrey Bogart and Lauren McCall. Have you seen the movie? I have not. I have not seen the movie either, unfortunately. Okay, well, I highly recommend it, and uh, it's a uh, mystery. It's a, a crime novel uh, by uh, Chandler, and it was the first to feature this uh, detective by the name of Philip Marlowe, and how he gets uh, he gets involved with a case involving uh, this wealthy family uh, and this complex tale of blackmail and murder. And I'm halfway through the novel right now. I'm uh, reading the ebook. And um, it's been a while since I've seen the movie, and uh, like I said, it's it's pretty complex because there are a lot of major players and there's a lot of misinformation. And a lot of what the novel deals, as well as the movie does, is how Marlowe is sifting through all the information he's giving and trying to figure out what are what is what is a lie and what is the truth, and just how further and further he gets into it and how. He gets involved with uh, this family, uh, 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 this old this old man who's got these two daughters. One of which is just kind of like this clutch, this uh, uh, kind of uh, uh, I wouldn't want to say uh, nymphomaniac, not not exactly, but I mean she's kind of irresponsible as far as substance abuse and stuff like that. Right. And uh, how he deals with her and as uh, and her older sister, who's uh, 
a little bit more it was more responsible and more clear headed but still a little vague and not very trusting of uh Marlowe and uh how other bit players come into it uh Raymond Chandler, uh, I haven't read every book of his. My older brother was. He got into old movies a big way when uh, we, because we grew up with uh, one of those big satellite dishes, and uh, he would always catch these old uh, films from TCM. We got our satellite dish within the first year of TCM being uh, broadcast as a channel. So he and I would watch all these movies, and he would get. He he became such a fan that he would uh, find the the novels that the movies were adaptations of, and I know he's read this one. Uh, and uh, the Big Sleep was on sale for like a dollar or two uh, when I bought it. And uh, like I said, I'm halfway through it, and the dialogue, first and foremost, as it's told from first person perspective from uh, the Philip Marlowe character, and it's just got that great little speak. Uh, I mean, you mentioned to me that you've seen Blue uh, Looper. Have you seen the director's previous film, Brick? No, I haven't. Okay, well, uh, Ryan Johnson, the director of both films, he made this movie called uh, Brick that also had Joseph Gordon Levitt in it, and it was a murder mystery set uh, amongst a high school but all the kids were talking in this horrible boiled speak where it, it's like you almost thought someone was going to be called a dame or something and uh, <laughs> it, it, it seems so weird and it's a conceit that has to be bought but if you do it, it, it it's just a fun ride and that's that's pretty much what I'm getting with the big sleep so far so I, right now I can't say if it's like the greatest one of the greatest things I've written but it's a very entertaining uh, crime novel so far okay. so is that, is that kind so, of what started kind of the, the, the stereotype of the, the 30s detective speak I am not particularly sure but uh, Chandler is is just one of those guys that was uh, was a major player for your for pulp fiction or crime novels or stuff like that. it's like him or Dashiell Hammett or James M. Kane or even um, who's uh, Mickey Spillane they all they all uh, benefited and made popular that that kind of uh, film noirish uh, crime novel stuff where people talk like this and the men acted this way and the women acted like that. Right. And uh, this is my first book of his. I mean, basically, I've seen most of the movie adaptations of of uh, his works and the works of the other authors, which I just mentioned. Uh, but uh, Big Sleep, uh, so far, it, it's a very entertaining read. So um, I'm, I'm kind of taking a break from I've, – I've been reading a lot of high fantasy and I've uh, – like, you know, the Game of Thrones stuff. And I've been reading a biography of Theodore Roosevelt and I've just wanted a little break from uh, big old biographies and and uh, the big high fantasy fiction stuff. So um, it, it's a it's – a, uh, a nice change of pace for me. Right. I, I wanted to get into uh, comic books as well as kind of more nonfiction too, because I want to get, I want to kind of take a break from all the young adult novels that are getting turned into movies type thing. Oh yeah. Uh, you'll def, I don't know if you've seen or read, uh, the maze runner, but the trailer for that, uh, appeared during, the the theatrical screening of guardians of the galaxy. And I didn't, I didn't know exactly what to make of that one. So I haven't seen it yet, but I know, uh, one of my, one of 
one of the books I like, The Giver, from uh, way back when I read it. That was, yeah. that was a really good one. And the, it was. The movie trailer for that makes it look like Hunger Games, which I don't remember. <laughs> yeah, that's not time. what it felt like. <laughs> that's not what it felt like to me either. Yeah. All right. What have you got for a present option? Present, oh, uh, one thing real quick. Whenever you were mentioning the way the woman acts in that novel, kind of immoral or whatever – yeah, the whole femme fatale kind of femme thing. Femme fatale, right. Have you seen – this is kind of unrelated, but have you seen that clip of Jeopardy where they ask the guy uh, – I think it might be one of their biggest winners. They ask the guy, like, what's a uh, what's a name for a gardening tool and an immoral woman? And his answer is ho. And everybody, <laughs> and everybody starts laughing at it, and the, the correct answer is rake. And then Alex, Alex Trebek makes this comment like, ooh – He's in school in Utah, do they, or wherever the guy's from? Right. It's just, and everybody, I think that's a generation gap thing because you know, uh, among Alex Trebek and the other players on that show, maybe Rake was understood as being a gardening tool and a immoral woman. But everybody, every YouTube comment I see, which I always assume is somebody my age or younger, mostly, right, is saying like, "How is that not the answer?" You know, like. <laughs> I'm up for that. <laughs> I gotta be honest. That, that would probably be my reaction too. So I mean, it's either a, no. I have not. I have not seen that clip. It's no, a generation but, gap thing, or it's they were just setting it up because they knew it would happen. I think it has to be a generation gap thing. Yeah, <laughs> that's that's my suspicion anyway. So uh, anyway, uh, what do you got for a present pick? For present, as I as I mentioned with young adult novels. Uh, I read the first chapter again of Fault in Our Stars, ah. which is that one about the uh, – I read it on uh, Google Books. I read, I read a couple things on Google Books previews first before I bought this book because I, I really like the humor in the first chapter. It's, uh, it's, cancer, it's about a cancer patient, and uh, she is describing kind of her experience – as far as I've gotten, she's just describing her experience pretty much in these uh, in these little get-togethers, these uh, therapy meetings kind of thing, where people talk about all of all of their you know emotional issues with the fact that they've been basically diagnosed with this thing that's going to let them you know come to death sooner than they should. And uh, I just love the snarky humor of the main character is what mainly drew me into it. Just. It, it, it just reminds me of whenever I was a kid and I had to go to some function where it was like, I don't really want to be here, but I guess we all have to talk about something. And right. Yeah. You know, it, it just reminds me of being in that position myself and having this kind of snarky kind of dark humor about it, which, which I, I really love, uh, you know, snarky and kind of offbeat characters. Uh, the, the other the other couple of books I read on Google Books previews before that one were I read the first part of Game of Thrones, which there was too many characters and that <laughs> stopped. They are very dense, dense books, and they they only get bigger and bigger as they they go on. Yeah, it's kind of the same thing. Uh, my cousin actually graduated. He actually went to MIT and got his bachelor's and master's at the same time through some sort of dual program and works on all of these things. Like he's he's literally worked on a satellite for the government, the American government before that. And he, yeah. he keeps working on these projects. He can't tell anybody, uh, any of us about. And as far as I'm concerned, he's he seems to me like kind of a bona fide genius, like, you know, a legal Walter White in a way. And uh, 
And yet, whenever I asked him about the Lord of the Rings at his wedding or wherever it was at a family get together, he was like, "Oh God, those confuse the crap out of me. I couldn't keep up with all the characters." <laughs> <laughs> I just gave up because there's too too much going on. I was just like, <laughs> "Oh man." Well, I, I, I still, if, if the books are a difficulty for you, I'd still recommend the TV show because they have a very good way of spending enough time with each each, each characters and. Uh, it's uh, an abridged version, but they—it's like—it's it, like they—they they knew what parts to select and what parts to cut out. So, yeah. uh, in terms of the TV show, I'd still highly recommend it. But yeah, I—I I, my younger sister, when I was done with the first four novels, I let her borrow—I think like the first two or three—and she had trouble just getting through. She loves the show. She loves the show as much as I do, mm-hmm. but she had a difficulty just making through the massive length of of those novels. So yeah. that's understandable. What, what else, uh, what other books were you, uh, re- have you read recently? Uh, I also read part of the first chapter of divergent cause why not? Cause I, I really, what, what got me on this young adult kick is how much I really, I really did like the, uh, hunger games books. Yeah. And, uh, the movies are pretty, uh, okay too. I actually thought the second movie was better than the uh, second book in the series. Some of the changes they made, but, uh, I'm really excited for Rocking Jake because that's my favorite one and kind of, you know, has a lot of bittersweet stuff in it. But uh, I figured since Divergent looked like kind of almost the same thing, but in, and also got a movie for it and people were already making comparisons, I might as well. Because re- I know uh, Ranger Girl on Pixelbit read Divergent. She said, you know, the book was way, way better than the movie and that's what I've heard from a lot of people. So, I, you know, I figured I'd read it and see if uh, it's different enough from Hunger Games that I might want to check it out. But so far it's... You know how Hunger Games has kind of the districts that each make their own certain special product and have their own little cultures and things. Uh, Divergent is basically split up uh, into, you know, faction this and faction that that have you need to have this personality and do have this job and whatever. And it's so far it's similar to get into too much. That's why I haven't read it too much, right. you know, too far into it. Because I'm kind of like, well, this is it's kind of I'm also in addition to young adult fiction, I'm also kind of tired of the whole future dystopia novel too which i think is a little bit too ubiquitous in in terms of literature you know that that idea has been done a few too many times and i kind of get tired of it sometimes but so that's that's kind of why i chose fault in our stars as kind of like it's more of just based on characters in a very kind of uh normal everyday or situation and it's more it's more about you know just uh, it's more of a slice of life type of thing than what i've been reading recently okay so okay you know. good deal all right uh anything else or is that pretty much covers you as far as present options yeah uh for books uh, books are those ones i think everybody has the same problem where i really do want to read more but it's like i read enough for work and school and whatever else and i'm just <laughs> right you get lazy on it whenever it's like i don't i don't want to look at text as long as i live again after certain <laughs> projects <laughs> right um okay well my option for the present is a comic book and it is uh also a batman title um uh, the the local library up where I live, uh, which is Fayetteville, Arkansas, has a decent selection of uh, trade paperback collections, and uh, and I've been trying to uh, brush up on a lot of stuff uh, like uh, 
uh, Alan Moore's legendary run on Swamp Thing, and I think I got like the Crisis on Infinite Earths books. But if there, usually if there's anything Superman or Batman related, or maybe even Daredevil, I'll pick it up. And the one run that I've been reading so far is the uh, Court of Owls books. Uh, uh, for Batman, which was part of the New 52 launch, uh, and this was written by Scott Snyder. And I've read uh, recently the second volume uh, collection, which is called The City of Owls. And uh, it is a uh, fast, it is a really good, just overall Batman story. I'm not particularly sure how much I'd rank it, but it details is continuing battle with this secret society of owls that are just like this group of seemingly unstoppable killing assassins that take over Gotham, uh, try to kill most of the major players as far as politicians or people in law enforcement. And, and in this, in this, uh, section, in this collection, they go after Bruce himself in his own home even going into the freaking bad cave. So you've got this spectacular sustained action sequence where he and Alfred are trying to fight and contain these, contain these, uh, uh, villains. And, uh, afterwards, after that whole section is over, it, it turns into the more detective, uh, like aspects over the history of the owls, who they are, how long have they been in Gotham? Bat- Batman makes it clear that for the longest time he didn't believe they existed because he thought that they had something to do with the death of his own parents, which was a suspicion which um, he later he later uh, just you know forgot about or just didn't believe in it, and how in some ways it, it ties in with his past, and in some ways it doesn't. And uh, it's uh, very well written as far as dialogue and uh, the other characters. Uh, uh, Nightwing plays a really good part in it. Um, And I think uh, the art was by uh, Greg Capullo, who's pretty much known for Spawn. And I could see that in some of the ways that he draws these characters. But, I mean, it's it's a very, uh, very uh, good-looking book overall. And I think I've got maybe one more volume to go through before the story arc is finished uh but that that's pretty much been the most recent thing and i think that that collection came out i think last last year at some particular point Hmm. so uh the city of owls uh that's that's been the most recent thing i've read i gotta go see if uh because i i uh i'm in dallas right now for the weekend but I'm, i'm usually going to school in nacogdoches texas uh and I think the local public library, they actually have some comic books. So I maybe see if they have some. I kind of doubt that they have newer ones, but I'll see. You know. Yeah. It, I mean, in this library up here, it, it's got a lot of the essential stuff like, you know, of course, Watchmen. Uh, it's got like Dark Knight Returns and uh, it's got a lot of big collections. Like uh, they even we were talking about X-Men and Apocalypse. They even have this big one of those big omnibus versions of the whole apocalypse run and it looks like you could it's so heavy you could probably kill someone with it (laughs) and i didn't pick it up because it's so freaking heavy but i mean there's it's a really good and inexpensive way to brush up on you know this history in case you know all these movies are coming out they're covering subjects uh they're they're covering storylines which um 
maybe it benefits you to know something. Maybe it doesn't. I mean, like I said, I just watched a comic books movie in which I knew nothing about and I still enjoyed it. But, uh, it's, it's definitely a good, if your library has a good collection of, uh, of graphic novels, it's a good way to brush up on your history. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, I'm looking at some Greg Capullo art since you mentioned it, him being tied to Spawn, which is one of my, I believe Todd McFarlane actually came up with the uh, design for that character, but that's one of my favorite character designs is uh, Spawn. Yeah. As far as comic book characters. Okay. So, anyway, that's, that's me uh, as far as reading material and, uh, Got a, I don't know if you've been wanting to mention this or not, but we've been going over two hours, so I remember <laughs> telling you, maybe this will last like an hour or 90 minutes, And right. uh, but <laughs> I told you this was also something we were going to play by ear, and apparently to do an episode, maybe it'll take this long. But we are coming up on the last section, of uh, uh, which is music. Uh, so what have you got as far as a past selection? Here's something, uh, this one I, I really wanted to get to, because uh, I don't know if you've seen, uh, it's become obvious that I watch a lot of you know YouTube and stuff like that. There is uh, a channel called SourceFed Nerd that does these things called Table Talks, where it's just three of the personalities on that show talking about whatever people send in on Twitter, and uh, they were asked what their favorite genre of music is, uh, or not genre, what their favorite decade of music is. Okay. And most of them went with like, you know, somewhere between 60s and 80s, like and I have no problem with that, but they all basically said, "Oh, 90s suck. There was nothing in the 90s." And that pissed me off. <laughs> <laughs> oh man. Like, see, and I and I think the thing is they were focusing on the pop music of the 90s, which was Vanilla Ice and Spice Girls and uh Mariah Carey, I guess, and uh what what else did they mention? They mentioned something Hanson. Else. Probably right. Hanson, uh, like the the band, the 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 uh, boy bands didn't start. They, they they really didn't take off into the early aughts, but in the late, definitely near the end of that decade, that's when we started getting oversaturated with right. that stuff. And I remember I actually had a Hanson T-shirt that I won in the Ego Waffles contest. So I, you know, in my defense, I was six years old. <laughs> right. But. But, you know, and uh, what I what I was infuriated about and what the comments mentioned was, you know, and this this might actually explain why alternative rock was so popular in the 90s, because, you know, whenever they said that, I was like, you know, pop music was really crappy in the 90s, from what I remember, uh, for my taste anyway, you know, Vanilla Ice and all that. But, you know, alternative rock like Pearl Jam and uh, Nirvana and, uh, you know, obviously I actually my uh, my job right now, I'm a graduate assistant at uh, Stephen F. Austin University. And what I do is I'm the station manager and music director for an alternative rock station. So oh, man. I, I grew up with that music and now I'm kind of working with it. And so whenever they whenever they just dismiss that whole decade as just, you know, nothing but shit music, I was like, you you are just becoming my least favorite people. <laughs> <laughs> you know? <laughs> that's, with good that's, reason that's kind of that's i mean you know a lot of it's nostalgia but that's you know that's all the music i grew up with i understand i totally understand you know 60s 70s 80s even 50s uh, honestly any decade of music i can totally understand except for the aughts that one i don't know i wasn't really into uh, a lot of the stuff that came out in the 2000s but 
you know, anything before then, I can understand picking almost any of those decades, really. Yeah. I, I, I think you can go through any decade. Uh, there, there are some decades that are held in higher regard the, to, than others. But you go through any decade, you're going to find a lot of shit. Yeah. And 90s, uh, I remember going into the 90s or near the end of the 90s, some people were saying bad things about the 80s. And now I'm like, fellas, you can't get to where we are without what people did back then. Uh, that doesn't mean to say that there's bad, there wasn't bad music there. There was. Uh, but we, we're, we've got to where we are right now basically because other people had you know, made that music and uh, uh, made their own stamps so other people can get inspired to do that other stuff. And if they're just focusing on what was popular, of course you're going to find things that annoy you because that's what attracts a lot of people. Right. So uh, sometimes 50 million people can be wrong. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. Well, I mean, and even even though I agree that it's maybe crappy music, I I mean, I like Vanilla Ice's Ice Ice Baby anyway. I don't don't care that it's a ripoff of... uh, uh, Under Pressure. Right, yeah, by Queen and David Bowie. David Bowie, yeah. And David Bowie, or was it just... uh, my understanding is it was David Bowie, uh, Queen and David Bowie. All right, all of Queen and David Bowie. I thought it might have just been David Bowie and I forget the lead singer's name of Queen. Uh, Freddie Mercury. Freddie Mercury, there we go. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Uh, but I, I guess for past, if you want me to choose a specific band and song, uh, my favorite song of all time, and again, I totally acknowledge that this is not, if you were to take any sort of critical measure in terms of, you know, te- uh, musicianship or technical whatever, it, this this should not be anybody's favorite song, but it's mine because of nostalgia, uh, When I Come Around by Green Day. <laughs> oh, yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, and I'm I'm very aware that that shouldn't be a best song on any list for VH1 or MTV or anybody else like that. But you know, for me personally, whatever. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, uh, that that album. I think it's like the Dookie album. Yeah. Uh, it, it's got plenty of songs that some people could. I mean, could could choose as like you know the highlight. Some would probably like Basket Case. I'm I'm kind of partial to Long View. Yeah. But uh, no, there's nothing wrong with uh, when I come around. So yeah. So that's no, that's perfectly that's perfectly fine. Um, I guess my pick would be uh, Soundgarden Super Unknown, which uh, recently got a 20th anniversary re-release, and uh, I, I was a big fan of that. I, I got into a lot of 90s rock for all, despite having lived through that decade. Didn't buy a lot of the the alternative rock stuff that came, especially if it was early '90s, because you, I live in Arkansas my whole life. I'm still there, so you know you listen to country or you were just better informed. So um, I was not very well informed as far as other things. I, I didn't live with this. Uh, I didn't live with all the music snob friends that I did when I as soon as I got into college. <laughs> but yeah. but. Uh, Soundgarden's uh, unknown album. It was one like one of the very first purchases I've made, and to me, it's it's like one of the best one of the best documents that came out of that decade and of that genre when it was 
ex- when it just exploded when Pearl Jam and Nirvana and all these other people came in with these like these landmark albums and Super Unknown to me was just still kind of their strongest. I I liked the sequencing of the tracks. I liked the way you got these weird uh, little instrumental bits here and there and uh the great thing about this new release was that they did a uh, a serious uh remastering of the album i still have the old cd and its sound quality has faded over time i don't know if that's just a limitations of uh the cd itself or just the way that the album was mastered back then but it sounds so the the 20th anniversary release sounds so much better and uh i was listening to that while i was you know, waxing and stripping floors this past week. And, uh, it, it still, it still works. I, I consider it to be pretty much a, a flawless album. Yeah. Uh, spoon man would probably be my favorite. From what I'm looking at on here. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I like, I do like a mailman. Uh, uh, I do like 4th of July as well. Uh, and head down is really, really freaking weird. I, I, I love the fact that Soundgarden would play around with different time signatures and uh, stuff like that. So, uh, yeah. yeah, it's 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 still pretty big for me. Uh, what do you got in terms of a present uh, or recent uh, musical option? Here's the thing. I actually have a lot of uh, good music that I could choose that I get in whenever I do the music directing thing, but I've been having some technical issues where uh, I, I use Adobe Audition at work to uh, upload to this white orbit system. But anyway, we, we just got new computers installed, and I think that might be why my computer in my office is so damn slow right now. Okay. But So I, I have a lot of alternative rock songs that I think are good, but I don't remember the names of any of them because they're brand new and I can't recall what the what it said on the sheets whenever i'm uploading it or whatever so i'm just gonna say that the song that uh i've been listening to a lot lately even though and it, it, it's kind of like the vanilla ice for 2014 <laughs> is uh iggy azalea fancy oh okay <laughs> yeah and and uh I, i've seen a couple videos like uh, there's there's some critics online for these things too like there's the rap critic and there's also a guy named todd in the shadows that do music reviews and they pointed out how stupid the lyrics are and i, I understand uh, you know and i can't understand them anyway some of them but yeah just it's one of those songs that i should hate but i find it catchy all right yeah. gotcha <laughs> nice um as far as recent, I was thinking about uh, I, the, the the choice I'm going with was something I listened, uh, no joking, like maybe two hours ago for the first time. I was originally going to lead with uh, Mastodon's recent album, um, hmm. but I found this one. I, I, I don't know if you subscribe to any uh, magazines or read any regularly or anything that, are, that covers a sp- particular genre but the one that i have kept in touch with for like maybe five or six years is decibel which covers the extreme uh which covers metal and most of its uh more extreme subgenres. and they recommended this album called uh last so long by swan king which is uh kind of a crap it's kind of like uh, uh, metalcore maybe kind of like some punk post-punk kind of uh, songs where they're like you got an average of maybe three to five minute songs but they've got prog rock like uh, 
chord structures, like uh, the the way that the songs are put together, and a lot of the uh, a lot of the vocals are pretty much just screamed out. So you you you, you could almost think of screamo <laughs> genre in this thing. But I I was listening to it all this morning while I was doing some preparation for this podcast, and it's quite a catchy album. It, it, I mean, there's uh, the vocals are screamed a lot, but it's not in that annoying annoying way that can put off a lot of people like you're you're you won't find yourself listening to and this is a band i like but you won't find something as abrasive as napalm death or something that this is actually something you can get into <laughs> right and but, napalm death reminds me of uh cannibal corpse which <laughs> is, which uh whenever i look up like i'm actually into a lot of you know heavier heavier stuff like i actually right. play mastodon's new single on the station i got that on i forget what it's called uh, it might be Leviathan. I don't remember. Well, no, that's way older. Hold on. Yeah. It's uh, I forget what the name of the song that we played, but I know I got something we're on. It, it might be High Road. Yeah, I think High Road is the name of the the track. Yeah. Right. Uh, but anyway, whenever, but I do listen to heavier stuff like uh, Children of Bodom. If you've heard of them from Finland, there's, uh, there's a few other ones. Uh, I love uh, Black Dahlia Murder. Uh, I've seen them live, actually, both of those bands live uh, here in Dallas. But uh, the uh, what was I going to say? But for Cannibal Corpse, like the other bands, if I look up the lyrics on, if I look up a video with lyrics to it for one of their songs, I actually I can start going like, oh, I kind of see how these. Okay, now now I can actually hear that. <laughs> Whereas Cannibal Corpse, I I look I looked at a lyric video for uh, I think it was. Uh, I forget what song it was, but anyway, I looked at the lyrics and I and I was just like, nope, I I still have no, I don't hear any of this, you know. <laughs> right. Uh, as far as Cannibal Corpse is concerned, I I think the first singer that they had was very incomprehensible. The the, I think it's the second singer they got was a uh, uh, Corpse Grinder George George Fisher. Right. It was uh, what? What was his name? Uh, it was uh, Barnes something, like Steve Barnes or something. Who who was a founding uh, member, and he did the whole. He he took that that Cookie Monster like growl and <laughs> took it to a. I, I mean, I, I I love some of their earlier stuff. Like Tomb of the Mutilated is still very fun to listen to, but I, I it beats me what he's talking about, and because of that. I'm not really inspired to look up the lyrics because I, I'm still I'm still kind of scared off by the actual song titles. I mean, it's <laughs> it's just that they they it's amazing how something that old still carries a lot of shock value. But right. uh, but uh, yeah, I think when uh, George Fisher took over, you could kind of better understand what he what he was is saying. George Fisher is he on Hammer Smash Face though? Because that. No, Hammer Smash Faces with the the Steve Barnes, okay. uh, wow. Steve Barnes years. Uh, I think I saw I think I saw a live video of uh, of uh, Fisher doing it, so I just assumed that he was always because I can hear Hammer Smash Face, but I, I don't understand the rest of it. Yeah, they they they, they probably uh, obviously they'll they'll play their old stuff. I mean, and Hammer Smash Face is probably their best known best known song, thanks to. Uh, Ace Ventura, right. maybe. I, I think that actually is where I saw George Fisher. I think by that time he was with the band, maybe. Corpse Rider? I th- yeah, I think he was. Yeah. 
I think. I never, I, I never sure. even knew that scene was in there until I got old. I think I knew, I probably knew the scene was in there, but I, I didn't know that anything about that until I got older and, you know, something was mentioned online about it. Yeah, like I thought it was, a, a, I, I didn't think that was like a real band or <laughs> right, something. That's what like, I thought too. <laughs> and then they were doing Cookie Monster like vocals and I thought, well, this is pretty much, uh, you know, goes with the flow of the le- of the rest of the of Ace Ventura and its craziness. Right. So, but uh, and I remember yeah, uh, Penn I, and Teller were in uh, Ace Ventura, one of them too. And I, I, I didn't know who they were until I got older either. <laughs> I think they had some sort of trick with a shark that they were trying to show. And from what I remember, okay, uh, I, I, I need this. I need to see that. <laughs> see that movie again. So again, someday. Oh, Chris Barnes was his name. Chris, Chris Barnes. Barnes. Okay, uh, man, uh, that pretty mu- so that pretty much wraps it up for uh, you know, the Swan King. Uh, uh, lost, lost so long. It, it just recently came out, but uh, it's not a very particularly long album, and uh, it's got some nice, nice riffs in it and a nice little groove to it. So uh, I would, uh, I'd recommend that. Okay. All right. Well, I think we have pretty much uh, come to the end. Finally, <laughs> see. Two hours, nearly two hours and 40 we minutes, man. A, uh, got, we just made a Dark Knight movie in Pocket <laughs> The Dark Knight Rises. <laughs> we, we made a Transformers movie because they all run that long for no particular <laughs> oh, reason. Seen, there's a uh, Red Letter Media did something with Transformers recently where they had uh, three screens of all of all the Transformers movies, first, second, and third, on three different televisions. They were watching all of them at the same time. And they were literally just looking at like, here's this beat, here's this beat, here's this beat, and seeing where, where, what time signatures they got to in the, in each movie. Oh man! <laughs> so, like, I wouldn't be surprised. I wouldn't be surprised if they synced up perfectly they almost, that way. They they didn't sync up perfectly, but they were, you know, they were constantly commenting on like, oh look, this is only you know however many minutes off, and there's even little timestamps at the bottom telling you like how how close they are to the beat where optimus prime comes in the beat where something up or whatever yeah oh god or the the beat where shia LaBeouf says no a lot right i think three were more similar the the first one more actual characterization or whatever and the second and third ones are just basically (laughs) the same movie as far as oh oh my god um Okay. Well, yeah, we have we have basically made it with no problems. I remember trying to record a podcast with an, another friend of mine, uh, Matt Thompson. I think he's a Trip Op Fifty Five on on Pixelbit. He and I tried to record a podcast, and Skype just kept cutting us out constant, like two or three times, and we had to make two recording sessions out of it. But we got lucky yeah, I, here. I've so. heard you, I've heard you uh, kind of crack up a little bit a few times, but for the most part, you seem to be coming in really clear. So yeah. Okay. Well, I hope uh, it'll turn out better when I'm editing this yeah. whole thing. Um, so anyway, uh, I I thank you, man. Thank you for being my first guest on here. I think uh, I think we've managed to make some pretty good conversation right, out of man. this. I dig it. Maybe maybe next time have uh, kind of a list of what we want to talk about so uh, it doesn't go <laughs> three hours, you know? Right, right. Time, or maybe we can just for the first it. time though. It was awesome talking to you. So I mean, I'm glad I got to talk about these things for three hours. Just I don't know if uh, you know. I don't know when I would be sitting down to listen to three hours podcast. <laughs> See, 
you know? Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I, when I first sent out that, that mission statement, I, I had some, some people tell me like, I like listening to long podcasts, you know, maybe I, maybe he likes running or maybe when he does, when he's working. Uh, but, uh, I told him, well, I mean, I figure, I, I didn't. I mean, I like kind of like long podcasts as well, but I'm, but I'm flexible in that. So uh, maybe we, maybe we just need to work on the formula just a little bit or whatever. Maybe I, maybe this is something that's unavoidable. Maybe picking both a past and a present for up uh, choice for each medium. Maybe that's a little bit too much. I don't know, well, but we'll but, see where well, we can go from can, here. I mean, you can easily split this up into different segments, so it's not you know once you know right. it's smart you know, like books and the tv are two completely different so i mean you know yeah oh well anyway that's the end of this podcast if you want to be a guest on the t on the uh, uh on the podcast you can email me at past and pending podcast that's all lowercase at gmail.com my twitter account is uh avid acrid jam and the podcast's website is avidacrajam.pobby.com. Uh, Joe, do you want to leave any contact information, or do you want to, or do you wish to uh, remain you anonymous? Can, uh, I write some articles for plus10damage.com as Joe Step. I'm also blogging on pixelbit.com as Joe Step. And uh, other than that, that's really that's kind of the creative things that I do. That where you can find me or make friends or whatever you want to do with that. Great. Great. Um, before we end, I just want to give a brief shout out to some other uh, podcast and their respective host uh, for giving me some aid or giving me some in, uh, inspiration for this. Uh, I, had, I had talked to Joe about uh, Killer Assassin 11, who uh, is the co-host of The Unknown Connection, which is a video game podcast. Most people from Pixelbit or the now defunct oneup.com will probably uh, probably remember him and he helped me with securing the software and getting an idea of how to mentally approach uh, recording this thing. Uh, my favorite podcast right now is Entertainment Landfill uh, and its host uh, uh, Jason and Bill and Steven uh, they've, they've helped give me good advice and uh, I want to recommend them. They also have a Patreon account for their uh, podcast, which is at patreon.com slash landfill. If you like the show, they have this account where you can donate as much as $1 per month, and they are trying to uh, provide even more content uh, and help kind of pay for their bills. And I would also like to give a shout out to uh, the Seeking Pause podcast, which is uh, this fantastic movie review podcast from two guys over in the UK, and they cover old movies. Uh, and they've just recently wrapped up a great two-part uh, birthday episode, and I highly recommend uh, everyone check that out. Uh, other than that, man, uh, this is the end of it. Uh, my name is uh, Adam Sexton. You have been listening to the Past in the Pending podcast, and you cannot truly enjoy what you have now if you don't appreciate what's come before. Have a good, have a good day, and we'll see you next time. <laughs>